Hello and welcome to episode 254 of the Crate and Crowbar. It is the 12th of September 2018. My name is Chris Thurston and tonight I'm joined by Tom Francis. Hello. And Alex Wiltshire. Hi. Welcome back it's to the to stage you. of history. It's been a while. <laughs> it's been a while. It's been a while for both. Yeah. Tom, you've been away? Yep. At I'm PAX? At PAX and Seattle generally. Mm-hmm. Um, that was very fun. Yeah, Seattle General, I think, is where uh, Grey's Anatomy takes place. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Yeah. Alex, where have you been? What's your experience? I went to Italy. Oh, I didn't know that. For a week. It was nice. Good. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and then I had a cold. Mm. Mm. Summer cold. Yeah. But I'm all better now. Great. What an arc. <laughs> all all the... Uh, Requisite story blocks. Indeed. In order. <laughs> yeah, it's like a hero's journey. <laughs> But not to Italy, yeah, and then back again. And he sneezed. The end. Thanks, Joseph Campbell. In the house we were staying, uh, it had um, Japanese toilets in every room, or every, every, in every room, in every, <laughs> wow. in, in, in every shit anywhere <laughs> within the Japanese toilets. There's another Japanese toilet recursively forever, and that was what was surprising about it. <laughs> oh, I've just won up my own story. <laughs> it's enough to make you ill. They're, they're, they they're all totally automatic, and every time you went in the bathroom anywhere near it. The, the lid would just rise up and Wait oh my a God. Second. be terrifying. Yeah, so what does it mean for a toilet to be automatic? It feels like it can't perform the function you want you go, by itself. You don't have to touch <laughs> Some you didn't have, you don't have to touch anything apart from yourself. <laughs> no, you don't even have to you don't ever have to touch yourself. <laughs> you you, you go just in can if you want. I mean. The lid automatically rises. You sit down. So you're yeah. touching the, it then, aren't you? The, the the fucking seat is heated, so you sit down. It is discomfortingly fucking. Does it take? Warm. Is it heated enough that you hover off the surface? No, no. You, you, it's like skin skin warm. So you think, oh, someone's just been sitting here, and they get no, no, nobody. It's just a <laughs> heated seat in the middle of fucking summer in Italy. So, like, then you do your business, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then if you choose, water will jet out and you know into you. <laughs> And and then you'll stand up once that's done that, and then it flushes itself automatically, and then the lid goes down. Does so fundamentally, process. there's no, you don't have to touch yourself. You don't have to touch anything at all. What about your with your what, hands? What about taking your trousers off? Uh, there are robotic arms that come out. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah. You do have to. That's, well, unless you were naked. There's a hole in the market for robotic hands. <laughs> <laughs> robotic hands are coming out of the hole <laughs> there's um yeah i mean if you were naked i imagine that entire experience would feel just extremely decadent yeah, yeah. <laughs> like yeah, yeah I, I was did. naked all all, uh, all all holiday so <laughs> that's how you got that cold alex <laughs> <laughs> yeah, errant use of the auto toilet <laughs> incredible what a year to live in <laughs> <laughs> indeed i tried to play the witcher three last night i tweeted about this um and I couldn't load my save because I didn't have the correct beard downloaded. <laughs> Previously played with a beard I no longer owned. So did he, could he not just sort of say he hasn't got the beard, but we know that it's a beard that we do have. So you could just give him the original beard. Yeah. In in fairness, there were two DLCs I didn't have. One of them was the beard set that I had been using, apparently, which I don't recall at all. Um, and the other was a quest. So I imagine the quest is trickier to sort of like filter out of your save game. Uh, but yeah, I'm pretty sure it won't run even if you're just missing the beard. Mm. The beard is free. It actually kind of annoyed me a little bit because I went, then went to get it and it's free. So that's great. I mean, I don't have an opinion really because if, <laughs> if it cost any money, I wouldn't have bought it in the first place. So I wouldn't have this problem. <laughs> um, and they, they've done like loads of free DLCs and well done. Good on them. That's great. 
but why are they DLCs? Why don't you just add them to the game if they're free? Like, why do I have to manually install each one? Like, I think on GOG they have a better process for it, and they probably, that might be intentional because they kind of mm. want to push people over to GOG, but on Steam, each one is its own DLC, and there's, like, it's not a one-click install, it's like a two-click install, so when they're all on one big page, you've got to, you also can't open them in new tabs, so you've got to manually, like, click on each one and then click again to confirm the install, and then go back to the previous page and click on the next one, and there's, like, 12 of them or something. Yeah. I um are there any Steam DLC things where it's just an in-game checkbox and it just sort of I mean if it's free most people just add it to the game like it just as an update you know yeah. everyone yeah. has it um but you can like once a DLC is installed you, there's a checkbox next to it to turn it on and off so that it's even for like optional content you could do it that way um you can yeah in fact I know enough about the back end of Steam to say you can auto grant DLC to people you can just say like you all own this Oh, okay. Yeah, that would explain... But making it free, stuff in but they don't own it, means they have to go and manually install it. Yeah. I think you said this on Twitter, Tom, but there's, it feels like there's a very specific experience thing you want, they want you to feel when they set it up in that particular yeah. way, which is like a kind of gratitude, right? It's like, oh, you've, oh. you've, you've released something for free because it's in the store page, therefore it's, it has value. Yeah. And yeah it's I think free, which is better than costing money. Calling it DLC... i go and do it. Calling a DLC lets them say, oh, we've done 27 free DLCs. Yeah. Sounds good. And it is it, good. But- and also because DLC is traditionally invoked in a kind of negative context, or it used to, it used to be, like that kind of, yeah. like, oh, God, it's just late. Yeah, that's the other thing. Is like, look at us, like, compare us to the people who are charging for DLC. Yeah. We're doing our DLC for free. It'd be like, like knocking someone's door and saying, like, this is a burglary, but here's a free television. <laughs> and you're like, oh, wow, you're doing this right. That's a, a little- bad analogy, but I said it. <laughs> 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 I would say that CD Projekt are physically robbing me. <laughs> they're giving me this they're free unrobbing stuff. you. They, they're giving me this free stuff in a way I don't approve of. <laughs> I hate. He's dangling something in front of you and asking you to come out of your house, down the road. There is a like the automatic toilet that shoots water up your ass. It's the unbidden benefit to a system you weren't asking for. <laughs> That's the example. There we go. I knew it was a good idea to talk about the toilets. <laughs> Uh, CD project in general, you know, treat their customers very well and that's a good thing. And, uh, co- companies that don't do that should do that. But I sometimes worry about like the kind of the tenor of the, uh, sort of relationship between the community and developers. Like people love CD project. They're, they're yeah, a yeah. rabid fan base, especially on Reddit and Reddit especially hate EA and people, you know, nickel and diming them for stuff. Uh, often for like, uh, pretty legit reasons. Uh, although sometimes the, uh, scale of the reaction is not in proportion to the scale of the offense, I would say. Mm. Um, but I saw a, like a post flying high on Reddit the other day about, um, there's just a screenshot from a mobile game. Uh, it was a free to play mobile game, but it popped up with this nice message saying that, um, oh, uh, be aware that you can get everything in this game just by playing. Like none of it is, is locked behind currency exchange, but, uh, we do need to cover our server costs and stuff. So if you want to buy something, um, for like five bucks and instantly unlock it rather than having to work for it, then it helps us. And this was like posted as a sort of good guy game developer thing. And <laughs> which is the, basically the, the concept of free to play. Yeah. It's kind of the same thing that they hate elsewhere, but because the developer groveled, it's a mm. really, they, they like it. And I'm, it feels like the, the relationship they're heading, they're trending towards is like developers just have to get on the knees and beg and like, <laughs> like you know, sort of be wretched in that sort of medieval way of like, Oh, well, I'm so unworthy of your love. But if you did give me $5, it would be so wonderful. Yeah, it's the, well, it's the sense that the developer is somehow, I mean, this is maybe a more serious discussion springing off a toilet chat, but like, <laughs> um, like it is the sense that there's, the developer is somehow kind of like your friend or they're personable or you relate to them, uh, which is like fundamentally very marketable on the internet. There's a very good, uh, essay 
by the YouTuber Lindsay Ellis, who does mostly film criticism, but she did uh, one, I think it came out today, I watched it today, about kind of YouTuber culture and, and the nature of like calls to action in YouTube videos. And it's very, very similar, like sort of, you know, kind of the eye roll, but here's our sponsors thing, or like, oh, I mean, so much if you could, you know, making, making the act of like rating or subscribing personal rather than simply kind of like, mm. this is my business. And, and often on YouTube, the, the stakes are even higher, like avoiding all costs, making your audience feel like they are your customers. What they need to feel like is that they're your best friends and that you, that you, you know them. And, mm. and there's so many good examples of when, for example, YouTubers, uh, sort of facade falls a little bit and people either see them for who they really are or see, simply see the business and the transactional element of what everyone is aware of is going on and that generating kind of really negative feeling. That's the difference to game developers because people are more primed to see game developers as, uh, faceless kind of mm. corporates. Yeah. But it means that when a game developer does step out and go like, Hey, it's me you can relate to me, I'm a relatable person, then people kind of flock to that. And I think that weirdly, it's weird that there is also a power dynamic there, which is like, and also, I'm doing this for you. This is, you know what I mean? Like, you mm. own me a little bit, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's good. discomforting. I'm trying to do that with, um, I'm thinking about this a lot with uh, uh, heat signatures updates, because we're about to do another one, and it'll have a lot of new content in it. And I don't have plans to do any others after that. <laughs> like, mm. can't say for sure. I definitely won't, but I don't have any plans to do it. And I don't want anyone to expect them. So it's a, I'm trying to establish a relationship where like, about to give you a free thing. Don't get used to it. <laughs> this is not our relationship. You, you don't yeah. deserve this. <laughs> this is, Heat like, signature. The last Christmas update. <laughs> the, <laughs> last the other thing Christmas. is I don't, I kind of said last time we did an update that it was probably going to be the last one. And mm. then this one. For is, real this time. I'm yeah. not and so back. if I say it again, it just becomes absurd at that point. <laughs> shut down the game. Just shut it down. <laughs> Turn it off. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. I've, I've been reading off about the Red Shell debacle as well, um, which is uh, Red Shell is a, uh, a sort of a service which is able to join up the websites that you visit with the games that you play on Steam, right? And uh, right. so fundamentally, it's a marketing tool which a game developer or publisher can use to figure out where, um, correlations between purchases of their games and whether that that person has seen adverts for that game because it allows them to get an idea of whether their advertising is successful. Oh, it's God, what no. <laughs> everything is like, it's what every, you know, it, it's that's standard on the internet. Like that you, by visiting pretty much any website today, you have been part of these systems yeah, for yeah. Amazon or whatever, but this is specifically built for Steam and um, is exposed in in June uh, on Reddit with an extremely angry kind of thread, as you'd expect about privacy and about <clears throat> um, uh, them being predatory and being, you know, sort of scurrilous and evil and, and, uh, and, and spying on you. Um, basically, their service being spyware. They don't actually install any software on your computer. Um, the dev... Uh, integrates it as part of the game like integrates a thing as part of the game which is able to sort of um uh grab a few identifying factors about your um mm. a computer which you know like the browser you use and the screen resolution you have like fingerprint stuff that that standard browser kind of cookies can generally have in them anyway mm. and then it uses that fingerprint then to try to identify your ip address and that kind of thing so it doesn't actually do anything any more invasive than anyone than you ever visiting a website does but it was but it, it you know this was in uh 
Elder Scrolls Online and um, Vermintide 2. And it's, it's in most games. It was in most games. And then this Reddit thread just laid it all out. And like, as soon as the outcry started, developers started stripping out the Red Shell service from their games. But this is kind of after the, the horse had bolted really, because they already had the data. You know, like, you know, the games yeah. were yeah. out, reasonably mature, and you know, the, the marketing had mostly been done. Um, the interesting thing for me is that it could have been dealt with if the, if the developers had done the, Hey, uh, you know, we're just a developer and we, we'd just like to better know what's happening and whether you're interested in our games. This is what we're doing. But of course, nobody has that kind of disclaimer in their, their, mm, their games. No. Also, I'm not sure if it would work in this case because it's also so heavily involved with like web advertising and like people don't question why that is free or what processes yeah. have to be put into place to ensure that it remains free yeah. while it still gets, pre- while it still exists. Yeah. And that's just a much bigger problem, right? Like, you know, an intractable issue with internet media really is that, yeah, you know, greater and greater, you know, security is demanded by people putting the money in for things like advertising, greater assurance. Yeah. And there is really no way of, you know, f- fundamentally kind of verifying those investments are good ones. And as it becomes more and more frangible, necessarily people will do things to try and ensure that they're getting the mileage out of yeah. what they're spending on advertising. But I think, I don't think audiences really want to know any part of that. Like, yeah, well, they, but, it, but I think sort of what's interesting as well is that the attitude of a PC player is totally different to that of a mobile player. Like a mobile player, like mm. it has always been part of mobile games. You know, you know, you play a mobile game and then suddenly you're hit by a load of adverts and you kind of, you know, that, that all sorts of things is coming off a phone. If you've got an Android phone, it probably knows everything about you. It's probably listening. <laughs> God knows what's happening, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but in PC world, like the, the very basics of those kind of, you know, interactions and kind of things are like the worst thing in the world. And I think it's interesting to, I'm wondering why about that. Yeah. And I think part of it is that it's sort of, you know, the immobile, there were, there were, there was barely a generation of mobile games where this wasn't a part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but PC, like PC's long history has not had any kind of surveillance or like sort of tracking related yeah, to it. Yeah. But also I think you can't go into a mobile game and strip out all the files and have a look at what's going on. Hmm. You can't see the running processes and what's happening and track kind of, you know, sort of data coming in and out of your machine. Whereas on a PC, like you can fucking see everything. So it's like a sort of, (laughs) you're damned with this sheer fucking information, you know, and, and, and that, and just, I think the PC kind of sort of mentality, which is my piece, my box is my, thing this is my domain and no nobody shall have any influence over it but this is the issue this is what i think is kind of like the damning hypocrisy at the center of that ideal not to say that we should all accept the way things have gone with software but the damning hypocrisy of it is if you're angry about that you take to reddit a service you probably don't pay for except with your data yeah or you take to twitter a service you do not pay for except with your data or you know or you take to the you know and and you in like yeah you can you can like localize this anger for a particular type of software for games but you would you will not pay for your videos or yeah. your articles or your comment threads or your forums so and you expect them to be free uh so that you can voice your complaints about the other thing and in doing so you participate in exactly the same system but the same standards aren't applied like it's you know it's 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 
effed basically like yeah, you can't is. have one without both right you can't like you can't say we demand all software be distributed kind of openly and, and bought and owned by the end user and and it's kind of ethically kind of distributed and and fair and i get to own what i pay for and then say but this other whole set of human endeavors uh needs to be free by the way i don't know yeah bit of a bugbear of mine but yeah yeah it's a it's a, it's a strange setup. And I think there are valid questions in there. And I actually spoke to the, the, the CEO of Red Shell and he was really very reasonable person. And I, I believe him when he says that we, we don't do anything scurrilous. Like the, there is and actually, and I believe him when he says we do help make better games because it means that the people, you know, you, if you love Vermintide 2, then Fat Shark, the developer of Firm and Tide 2, is spending the funds that they have well so that they're advertising right. Uh, they're not wasting this stuff. They're making good decisions. Yeah. And that's going into new games, you know, from them yeah. that you will also like. Like, sort of, there is a, there is a sort of a, an economy of stuff that's going on that people, that is invisible to people, you know, that sort of, the, the developers have to do in order to to make games and and put them out and just you know and promote them and stuff that that like it, it's got to happen like i think the, the the biggest issue with it all is is communication um and i think that that's what people are having to learn like just don't don't do stuff quietly like and hope people don't notice mm. because you will be noticed and then you're fucked yeah don't have a discreet poem in someone's garden yeah do it openly, Use the proudly. automatic <laughs> yeah, yeah. automatic toilet in help, the middle of the, the robot room. arms help you <laughs> exactly. I'm glad that we keep coming back to that. Uh, yeah, the only Facebook ads I get are now for Unity, and I fo- already follow Unity on Facebook, and I also pay them a hundred dollars a month. <laughs> I don't know how much more money they can expect to get out of me. Really. Do you get so? So I think that there are quite a few people in our in our kind of um, peer group who all get the same YouTube uh, YouTube advert. Fucking Grammarly. Fucking Grammarly. Like I complained about this on Twitter, <laughs> and it's like every single video I watch on YouTube, I watch an advert for Grammarly or occasionally Wix. <laughs> not the not the DIY shop my dad likes, but the website building software. And um, although my dad had a very good story recently about finding a dead seagull outside Wix, that was a top. <laughs> Good <laughs> top exchange. Outside the, the website. <laughs> no, no, yeah. Oh, right. Um, but that's, that's, that's by the by, uh, which is a service which I, from the advert, all I can tell is that it's like autocorrect, but, but like gone rogue. It's like, it's, it's, <laughs> it's really fucking extreme invasive. clippy. Like, it's like, <laughs> looks like you're a writer. John, um, and it's all, it's all actors saying like, you know, I, I write every day and I couldn't do any of it without Grammarly. And it's like, well, you shouldn't be fucking writing. That. <laughs> You're not writing that. It's like, I'm a surgeon. I couldn't do any of it without these automatic robot arms. <laughs> <laughs> Surgeonly. <laughs> exactly. Um, fresh from the toilet. <laughs> yeah. I'm a teacher and I couldn't do any of it without this mask I wear that honks facts to children. Honkily. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, I find it like, I appreciate that, you know, I've been freelance for 18 months now and a lot of this is just getting angry at things that YouTube shows me. But like, um, but like it does, I do find it like specifically insulting, not the advert themselves, because I'm sure there's a use for that, for that service. And actually it probably does have a purpose if, you know, people like there's a, there's a tremendous use for something like that, but advertising it for me directly based on whatever fucking information you've got about me, Google, you've got all my emails, you know exactly what I do for a living. <laughs> like the fact that you're delivering it to me in this 
<laughs> like, no, I my like, place of power. I like the fact insulting. that it's got me wrong. I thought of saying, ha, all those billions, <laughs> Google, and just trying to sell me something that you think I want, but I don't. <laughs> Fuck you. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I, I feel like I took it as shade, but I can see where you're coming from. <laughs> yeah, fine. But I mean, it could be worse. It could be anything else, but like, you know, it's that. And like at the moment, a lot of adverts are Tomb Raider. Those are the two things it thinks I want. And that means it hasn't read my review of the original Tomb Raider review. (laughs) (laughs) Your move algorithm. (laughs) I thought it was average. (laughs) Uh, in, in, in more positive, uh, cyberpunk dystopia news, uh, frozen synapse two is out tomorrow. Mm. That's exciting. Mm. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. I haven't really followed it that closely. Um, and I'm looking forward to it just finding out what it is. <laughs> uh, I know that it's like the, uh, sort of, uh, small scale tactical stuff, um, is, uh, they're sort of describing it as like, you know, tried and true because they, they already did a whole game just about mm-hmm. that. And now the new thing is like the city level, um, which is a kind of, uh, sort of vying for factional control of the city against other factions. And it sounds like it's a very kind of dynamic uh, campaign where each of those factions, I guess I do know a lot about this game. <laughs> each of those factions have their own AI and their own objectives and you're fighting over some kind of, I think they're called relics. Um, and yeah, it sounds like the campaign can sort of play out in many different ways mm. in, the, in the, the way that like a 4X game might, um, although not a 4X game, I don't think. It made me think of sort of like um, corporate total war. Like, mm. as in, obviously, the, 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 the vectors that war is conducted on are slightly different when you talk about corporations within a city. But some of that le- combination of, like, sort of grand strategy and actual kind of battle screens. Yeah. Which, yeah, I haven't, honestly, I haven't seen it probably for, for years since, um, Mode 7 brought it on the PC Game Weekend live stream and the first one, I think, which is mm. at this point two and a half years ago. Uh, but I've been, really really looking forward to it and i'm very yeah. excited to play I think it it's a cool thing to do with a sequel to sort of take the part that worked about the original game and then just add something else on top of it like, yeah not not try and just sort of do like here's five new weapons or uh oh god we've got to start from scratch and have a new engine and have like super realistic graphics and like you know um complete overhaul but just say okay the thing that works is still going to be there and then we're going to do this other thing on top of it yeah it's like i mean i guess maybe that's a question to ask yourself it's like i've got a new idea for a game would it fit around the old game <laughs> yeah like does the last game i make made provide a useful combat system for this one yeah. basically which is the kind of i guess the question but yeah that's super cool are you saying that tom should have kind of put put um, signature in a bigger game yeah <laughs> if i make a 4x game next so every time you go to a ship we'll just let you like zoom in and play <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's uh yeah it's seat signature all the way down basically it's like uh, what was that uh, was it recursion what was the game where every level had a level inside it there was uh yeah. starless sky or something like oh that. that's the one yeah big yeah. big giant starfield sky inside a starfield sky under a starfield sky it's jason rora one right yeah Yes, that's what I'm thinking of. And then, yeah, there's, that might not be the name at all. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's, there's like little, uh, slightly abstract robot things going in around inside the corridors of a ship, but then you can go inside them as well. And then there's, a I, th- all the way down. I think that is what the end game looks like for Zach Barr. <laughs> like each of his games containing the other ones. <laughs> so each one is like a level, like, like, like Inception, like Dactronics Inception, where you go up a level and like you're in, I don't know, you're in Shenzhen IO, now you're in Infinity Factory, now you're in Space Chem, and they're all kind of like operating 
parts of some great machine and your efficiency is judged based on the efficiency of every single sort of telescoping <laughs> element all the way down to some base level. But I just it, remembered I've got a Zach Bath has uh, did an interview with him and it's, it's just going about to go up on uh, Rob Paper Shotgun. But Excellent. Exapunks. Cool. We yeah. put the link in the show notes. Yeah. Good plug, Alex. Thanks, man. I, I was thought about we could do another plug. Yeah. EGX. EGX. Stuff. We are. Yeah. Because it's the week after the next. So I know you, your stuff is definitely confirmed and announced. Oh, okay. My stuff might not be, but I can say that I'm going to be there. Yeah. And I'm going to be doing stuff on the Friday <laughs> and the Saturday. I just might not be able to say what the stuff is. If on Friday, it is when this podcast goes live, it is acceptable for me to say what the stuff <laughs> is. The stuff will be in the show notes. But Alex, <laughs> tell us about your stuff. Well, at one o'clock on Friday, Chris, I'm glad you asked, uh, is um, I'm doing a talk with um, Robert and oh, the art director of Disco Elysium Ooh. on the main stage. We both uh, enjoyed talking to Robert Kovitz very much. Um, he was, he did, we did a bonus pod with him while we were at Resd. Indeed. And that game was very exciting. Yeah. Looking forward to that a lot. Me so too. Yeah. If you're there, come along. I, I hope to be, although I probably won't be arriving till just before then, but yeah. And, uh, well, I know that, I know that you should definitely be free at 4.30 at EGX on the Friday afternoon, but who could say why? <laughs> <laughs> and then there's something on Saturday as well. Uh, cool. Yeah. Um, I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be a lot of fun. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Um, also, uh, just a quick plug, if you like, uh, Daft Cyberpunk things, uh, as you listen to this or very close to, uh, the f- first part of a pen and paper role playing campaign that I recorded with, uh, my friends from PlayStation Access, the official PlayStation YouTube channel, it's going live this weekend. Um, it's a, so let's live play of the, um, of the original Cyberpunk 2020 rules system. And if you liked CNC D&D, which we did last Christmas, uh, you'll hopefully enjoy this. There are costumes. Uh, it's a video, so you get to see me do faces uh which i do when recording this podcast which amounts to now 250 odd uh times two and a half hours of wasted, wasted face face. Effort. yeah <laughs> all these faces lost like faces in the red. <laughs> yeah. i've seen faces you people wouldn't imagine many of them off a shoulder incredibly <laughs> <laughs> um no so that's 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 my plug i'll put a link to that in good plugs yeah but tom you got anything to plug uh nothing of my own <clears> but um friend of the podcast tim wicksteed oh yeah we, yeah this is his game also um tomorrow our time yesterday your time <laughs> if you're listening to this on friday <laughs> yeah. um uh mega aquarium is uh also coming out i have played only a very brief amount of it at, at pre-release um but looking forward to sticking getting stuck into it more um it is from what I have played. I can say that uh, it's uh, Tim is really good at UI. <laughs> like it's mm. and it's both this and Big Pharma, his previous game, are games where like the UI demands are high. There's a lot that you need to be able to do, and he has a way of just making it all just feel trivial and easy. And just his tutorial for this one um, has an interesting style where it's uh, sort of a to do list in the top right corner of like things that they want you to understand, uh, but instead of telling you how to do each one. Um, and having like, or having like pop-up tips that sort of, uh, interrupt you. Uh, it doesn't tell you anything about how to do any of them unless you mouse over them. So if you mouse over them, there's a little tooltip that then explains how you do that thing. But because you have to sort of like summon it in that way, one of the tips is to learn how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> mouse over this one. Um, and like, nice sort of learn by example thing. Well, the cool thing was, was that it sort of, it almost feels like a challenge to try and figure out how to do it without reading the tooltip. Like that was how I saw it. I was like, Oh, I think I already know how to do that without mousing over it. So I just won't. 
And yeah, like five of the six of that list, I was able to just like, hmm. oh, I need to place, I need to edit the layout of my thing. That icon looks like that's probably it. Yep, it is. Here it is. I've done it. So you don't have to go through the kind of boring kind of like now draw. Well, yeah, less reading. And also it kind of, um, it's a great like start to your relationship with the game mm-hmm. because it tells you to do something that you know the knowledge is there if you need it, if you need the guidance. And you think, no, I think your game is well designed enough that I'm going to just gonna be able to figure this out. And then when you do figure it out, you're like, yes, it is. Great. Mm. I can say that um, I, I think uh, fans of Pip will know that aquariums uh, mean a lot to Pip. And I, I will let her uh, obviously come on the pod to explain. Um, but I believe it's a thumbs up oh, good. from Pip Excellent. for Mega Aquarium. That's all I will say. But I know that you know, everyone involved will be relieved. Mm. <laughs> I did. Um, uh, I sort of got into a weird design challenge of uh, you make these tanks and the tanks need things like filters and heaters. And those are uh, quite bulky equipment that need to go on the outside of the tanks. And uh, I immediately got into like optimizing, okay, how can I keep these as far away from like the public uh, without, uh, you know, uh, making them inaccessible to the staff because the staff need to get to them to maintain them. My first bright idea was to just like box them off in some way, but then the staff can't get to them. And so, um, yeah, uh, it started to like make one, my whole aquarium was like one long corridor with all the tanks along the side and then like a separate, like a wall going uh, along one side of all the tanks and then all of the staff area behind it and uh, trying to figure out how to do that efficiently. Um, and one thing it's really good at is that Obviously, you're learning, I'm just going through the tutorial, and uh, you're learning the controls and just how to interact with it on a basic level, and so you're fucking up all the time. You're, like, you're making decisions that are going to screw over. Fish are everywhere. <laughs> fish, <laughs> fish on the floor. I didn't know you needed water. <laughs> Can you put a fish on the floor? I haven't tried. Uh, usually, you build a tank, then you put the fish in it, <laughs> and it's already got water, and you've got to think about things like, oh, this one's a bully, and these ones are timid. I can't put those in the same tank, because... Um, that would be bad. Uh, but yeah, the cool thing about it is that uh, you're learning and you're making all these mistakes about placement and changing your mind about, oh, now that I know I need to do this, I didn't want that tank there. But you can just move everything for free. Like there's no cost to... In most of these games, I feel like you have to sell the stuff and then rebuild it. And sometimes you don't get the full price of the thing. And so it becomes a, a pain to like change things once you built them. But this is just, you know, you can just move everything around for free. Awesome. That really was nice. Yeah, it was what a good, what a good September 13th. <laughs> for games yeah. where you look down on cyberpunks or fish from a top-down perspective <laughs> very similar games actually that whole genre <laughs> I, I definitely play megapunks where you have to build little tanks and put Aww. punks in them Could put, the shy, <laughs> put the shy punks with each other yeah exactly the aggressive yeah. punks or the shoegazy the... kids with each other I replay yeah. oh wow that's an amazing idea like, like small town art centre manager <laughs> <laughs> Oh my, oh my god. god. Alex, we're going to be rich. <laughs> I would play Frozen Fish, where it's like uh, Flotilla, but with fish. <laughs> have, you been to, two, you have, have you been to like Pike Place Market in Seattle? Yeah. Where the guys are, oh god, this is such a good game jam, where, where the guys like shout and throw fish at each other, yep. right? Like imagine if you had Frozen Synapse's turn planning system, <laughs> but it was a co-op game about throwing fish to each other. <laughs> so you pre-plan both basically the movement and the trajectory of the fish throw, and then have to hope that your co-op partner understands what you're about to do and has also programmed a kind of accurate catch 
kind of position uh, based on based on your explanation of how you're going to throw this marlin or whatever it is you're chucking. The marlin's a very big fish. Actually, that's like totally end, that's end game your stuff. Friend. Kill that's a man on a marlin. Yeah. <laughs> that's end game stuff. That's like full <laughs> Hemingway mode activated. No, that's I've, I've just had two million dollar game ideas. I don't know what the fuck is everyone else's problem. <laughs> but yes, no, that's good. Isn't it? It is. <laughs> <laughs> what you been playing, Tom? Uh, I've been... Uh, so at PAX, I played um, a bit of uh, Industries of Titan, mm. which um, mm. they had not shown the combat in that until now. And the combat is a bit of a reveal because uh, you can see inside the spaceships. <laughs> 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 so obviously my eyes lit up. Um and it's actually uh, a lot like FTL. So, uh, Industry of Titan is a 4X game where you build uh, like a, uh, you, you do build a city, but that's almost underselling it. <laughs> like it's a mega metropolis. The screen is just 100% city all the time. There's nothing that isn't city. Uh, I saw a bit of like when you explore the un, the un- uncitied, city, yeah. the non-city, <laughs> but it's still city. It's still just really old city that's kind of like abandoned. And, you sort of um, grow, you build the city on top of the existing city. Yeah, that's how it seems to me anyway. I didn't see a lot of that side mm. of the game, but um, yeah, but there's no like nature or wilderness outside of that. It's just all city. Um, and it's actually, the art is um, uh, by somebody I was already following on Twitter for his like voxel art. Called, uh, his username is Sir Karma um, and does beautiful voxel uh, sort of dioramas with incredible lighting. And uh, Introduced Titan looks like that, but it's uh, an entire strategy game. And you can, I zoomed around the city a little bit um, and sort of, you know, zoomed in on things and watched the little minecarts going around and um, figured out, or tried to figure out what each lit, what each building did. And is it, it quite sort of checked of, out? It all looks. Is it sort of uh, like SimCity-ish or kind of Factorio-ish? I didn't get to both. play any of the city building stuff, so I don't know quite what it's like. But I gather that it's uh, you are sort of building towards having enough economy and production and stuff to produce the the elements you need to build a ship. And mm. when you build a ship, uh, it's a big deal. Like one ship is probably going to be your military force for a, a big stretch of the game. Um, and so when that ship fights another ship, it goes into basically FTL mode and it's like split screen. You see the interior of their ship on the right, the interior of your ship on the left. You could, you have individual crew members you can order around. Um, when you build the ship, you design the interior. You decide where every component goes from the engines to the cockpit to the beds that they sleep in. Um, and then when they're shooting each other, you decide what, where to target on the enemy ship, like which weapons to fire where. And, uh, the way it's kind of damage system works is quite clever. Everything, if you hit, like, it's all on a grid, and, like, a, a generator might take up four tiles. If you shoot one of those tiles on the generator, um, you've destroyed a quarter of the generator. Like, you always destroy what you hit, but you only hit one tile at a time. Or if you have, like, a laser that sweeps across them, you might hit, like, three tiles at a time. And so, to destroy a component, you need to destroy every single tile that it's made up of. So a big one is tougher, just inherently. Um, but you can also, if you just shoot empty ground, that ground becomes impassable for the enemy crew. So you can do things like burn a line across to cut them off from repairing their stuff. Mm. Um, I had a, a, the AI, it should be said in the build that I played was, uh, just set up to just randomly target things. They didn't have any intelligence to what they targeted on your ship. So I targeted their life support. I thought I'd go for like kind of the long game where I'm not going to take out their weapons yet or their shields. I'm going to uh, destroy their life support. And then when they rush to try and repair that, I can, you know, uh, take out everything else. 
Uh, that strategy worked pretty well. It worked especially well because they chose to target my beds. <laughs> so, like, relentlessly, they just kept on setting fire to my beds. I'm like, I'm not even going to put that out. I think we can just deal with that later. <laughs> it was duck down everywhere. <laughs> like, we're tired, but we're not that tired. <laughs> Your uh, sleep hygiene is ruined. <laughs> what are we going to do? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it seems like that's my memory nice. foam mattress <laughs> <laughs> and it's set up just like i like <laughs> um yeah that seemed really fun uh obviously like uh i mean it's a tough balance to strike for like it worked in that demo i played um but if they're for the combat system to be like deeper and if there to be more to it um they i wonder if they're going to need some way for me to not just be able to burn a line across the the ship i mean you could just lay out your ship because you get so much control over how you lay it out you can just lay it out in a very open plan way where there's like three different routes to every system mm. and then you're never too um screwed by that kind of thing yeah finally bring the the sort of lamentable naughty's logic of like open plan offices to the sort of USS Enterprise logic for laying out starships, yeah. where everything should just be in one big room. Like, it's like, you just shout to engineering. In fact, it's a hot desking system. Engineering can be wherever the fuck it wants. That'd be better. So you can uh, place shields, and those protect just like a local area around them. So, like, you put it near the thing you want to protect. Um, and so you decide which things are most important. Um, but obviously, uh, if you know those take power and they take you need a person to man them um and the more people you have the more beds you need and they could target those beds anytime (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah it seems like a a really promising system and like just surprisingly in-depth for a game that is not primarily about that (laughs) like it's a city builder and then there's just this as well apparently wonder what it feels like though if you've kind of played for a few hours and you've built up this city and you're very tired (laughs) all your beds are on fire And you finally built this spaceship and you send it out and then kind of like one mission goes wrong and all your beds are on fire. <laughs> and um uh like does that feel slightly crushing if kind of you lose your ship or well, apparently get it badly damaged? You can sort of design your ship to be um more hands off if you don't want to get engage with the like tactical side of the combat too much. Like so you, you can get a shield or anything that protects like one specific place and needs a guy to, to protect it and that's very cost efficient, like it's strong for its price. Or you can get just like a general shield thing that will sort of work without somebody manning it and you don't have to pay so much attention to it. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Sounds really cool though. I didn't know that it had that element of it at all until you mentioned it. And yeah. Yeah. They did a, a trailer to reveal it, which we can link in the show notes. Mm. Yeah. That's really exciting. Hmm. What have you been up to, Alex? Been playing Dragon Quest. Ooh. N- 11. Mm. 11. I can't remember the, the, the tagline. I'm just going to look it up because um, it's like signs of an elusive age or something like that. Yeah, I, it's, yes. It's a totally forgettable um, tagline. <laughs> so much um, so that Alex has forgotten it. Yeah, Google, Google, Google. So yeah, it is Echoes of Ec- an Elusive Age. Mm. So is it yeah, E-L-U or I-L-U? E-L-U. 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 Not the so the age, so. they can't find it. It keeps running <laughs> off. But it's making an echoey sound. Yeah. So like that, it's very Bronze, difficult to place Bronze, it. Bronze. <laughs> <Yeah>. Victorian. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> bloody hell, it's wonderful. It's lovely. It's, oh, God. I, um, I, I really like the Dragon Quest PC, games. Right? So yes, uh, yes, I believe so. Yeah. Um, so Dragon Quest Games uh, series is a very old series from uh, Japan. 
Um, it was originally re- released or sort of published by Enix, which then obviously was subsumed into Square Enix, yeah. which is the publisher of this one. Um, they are basically the, 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 the JPG, JRPG, which, which kind of the JPEGs. launched. Yeah, the JPEG <laughs> that launched the JPEG. Oh God, I'm sorry. That's all right. They, there is the J, the JRPG, which launched the format of the, the, of the JRPG. There were, um, Japanese RPGs before then, but they were kind of based on Ultima and things. And this is the one that kind of said a, a sort of a distinctively mm. Japanese way of doing things. Mm. Um, and they are, they are very remarkable games. They, they feel very slight. Like when you first started playing them, they, they all follow a very, very, very similar format where, um, they're incredibly story led, like sort of, they, they are set in a kind of a, sort of an overworld in which you do have a certain latitude to kind of explore but you don't really and fundamentally you're going from city to city and every city you get the next shop has better stuff in it and you always buy that and then you go into a dungeon it, you know they are more or less structured like that but where they kind of sort of the, the charm comes out of the little stories they tell and they like every single one they're just utterly delightful and playful kind of just little vignette stories you go Mm. into a city you figure out what's going on there oh the king is a bad person and oh actually no he's not he's been taken over by something but they're always creative and interesting um some of them play around with kind of you're playing as one hero and then suddenly oh now you're playing as a totally different person he's a shopkeeper and in fact you are running the shop and you have to kind of, you know, go out into dungeons to get stuff to sell in your shop. And like, so it really messes around with the format and changes things on its head. And so you don't kind of sort of, you know, for the moment, as soon as you feel sort of, ah, it sort of feels a bit samey, then suddenly it mixes them up. This one, um, I haven't played enough to know kind of exactly what it's kind of thing is and where it's going, but, um, it's incredibly beautiful. It's, um, 3D. It is, I think it's an Unreal Engine. So it's sort of beautifully lit, kind of grand view distances going off in the distance. There aren't, um, it isn't random, random battles. You see mm. the enemies wandering around in the field. Uh-huh. So you can avoid them if you like, and you can easily avoid them because you can sprint past them if you want. Um, the voice work <laughs> is, um, is like there, there, there is a tradition with the series that, um, it's, it's put into English, like as in English, English or British English. Uh, so, uh, with very phonetic spellings of English accents or British <laughs> accents. So, uh, like sort of, it's just, I don't know how this sells or come across in America, but it's like, like proper, like proper accents that, that, that we would recognize and kind huh. of that are meaningful to us. Mm. Like there is a character that I haven't come across yet, but I know he's one of the party members and he's called Rab and he's like a rough and ready Scotch guy. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, it's like, it's probably like when Nino Cooney had like, it was yeah, so it's, profoundly Welsh, despite it's yeah. exactly the same. Like yeah. it's 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 not the same as that's Namco, isn't it? But mm. yeah, it, it's just exactly the same kind of um, thing. I think they were probably inspired by the way that Dragon Quest did it first in Dragon Quest Eight, I think it was mm. a few years ago. But um, uh, and the pacing of this, like the start, like you know, there's so much of it which is very. Uh, um, sort of stereotypical where you are the chosen per- mm. person and you've been washed, you know, you as a baby, you, you escaped a, the, the castle with all baby. these, where you'd kind of, you're put into a crib by someone and you're saved as right. all these demons come in and they're being, you know, then the person that's, 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 that saved you is being chased by these horsemen and then you end up 
uh, floating in your little kind of um, carry cot thing mm. uh, down and then you're saved by someone and then you grow up in the village that's the setting yeah. and you have a strange mark on your hand and then one day oh, wow, when you come to come of age all of them isn't it yeah but like somehow it manages to feel because it's just so beautiful mm. and then then suddenly it just takes off like you get into the main thing the things don't go to plan in the city you have to escape uh prison then there's a dragon and then you go to have to steal some stuff and like it's sort of like rushing along and there's hasn't kind of let up really um and it's just lovely i really you know i just think it's wonderful oh that's yeah I'm kind of well in the mood for something like that. But it's a it's, it's a, a real chill out game. I, I I've been playing with my daughter because I thought it'd be nice for us to spend half an hour with basically a story game. Yeah, you know, and sort of mm. sort of play something charming where she's just in control. Is there like so the thing that always makes me wary of of JRPGs is the sort of the grinding element and like I like grinding in games to be honest, <laughs> but like it's it's knowing now that I won't finish games that have incorporated. So this this one, uh, the what I from what I understand is it's not grindy at all. In fact, people are saying it's e- it's very easy. I think that's the case of the fact that I think a lot of players will just run past enemies and mm. kind of you know max you know min max them to hell and back. Um, so it's it's graded fairly easy, so you won't need to 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 to, to grind too much. Mm. Um, I think that it's mostly, but I think there's actually a huge amount of depth there. There are loads of kind of teaming up sort of, um, uh, mechanics going on in the battle scenes and, you know, and, and actually the, the turn-based battling is actually f- from my experience of the previous games is sort of gently interesting. Like mm. there's, there's sort of quite a lot of little sort of nuanced things. I mean, there's, there's no one thing in it, which is, sort of wow i never seen that before there's you know but everything is just beautifully considered you know they've thought very deeply about every tiny little element in it and it just as a result the whole thing sings hmm. oh and the element and the are oh, the enemies they're just like little sprouts with kind of funny haircuts and when they get into the to the fight they kind of like animate around and their hair's bouncing around and they got little buttons for eyes and you smack them up and it's <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the thing that my, I've not played a, dra- uh, a Dragon Quest game but everything that comes to mind is always the enemies are really cute yeah. and I never really understood how they can tell you them as enemies like it feels like Dragon Quest is the series where like every every JRPG series has it's like cute NPC faction like like little you know cherubic kind of cartoon characters who get your mail or like help out in some way or like the cats in Monster Hunter <laughs> but it feels like in, in Dragon Quest those are the enemies <laughs> and you have to kick the shit out of them is Dragon Quest where like that cute slime comes from yeah, yeah. exactly exactly yeah. it's like, sort of bouncing around with a great big grin on his face <laughs> bam smash him in <laughs> like, is that explained nope they're just I, enemies I like that this is just sort of universally a positive for you yeah. <laughs> oh they're so adorable then you destroy them it's <laughs> <laughs> it would be good if they like the, like Dragon Quest 12 are we the baddies yeah like, <laughs> <laughs> the heavily armoured humans going to war against I don't know, like the, the fucking bonbon people and the nice cactus <laughs> I think that now you say it, I think there might be one of them where you did get to recruit them into your, you know, to fight for you, but I can't remember. But that's just Pokemon then, yeah. at which point that's a whole other set of ethical considerations. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> Incredible. What'd you play, Chris? So, um, I have spent the week, uh, 
playing Destiny 2 Forsaken. And, I was going to ask you, actually, because I so, just came into it. So I, I, I talked about this last week on the pod I recorded with Pip. So I'm not going to repeat that stuff. Uh, it's excellent is one thing. Like, I, you know, I, I was definitely very positive about it last time, but having now finished it, uh, or at least finished the, the campaign stuff, holy shit, I love that game. Like, and I love Destiny 2. And obviously then uh, it had a combination of like genuine issues and also a kind of snowballing narrative that it couldn't escape. Yeah, I only ever hear negative stories about Destiny 2. Yeah, even though honestly it's it's probably one of the best sort of shooting mm. RPGs ever made. It's, you know, um, like, uh, love it in its own right, but uh, it really does. Uh, this is definitely it, Destiny 2's Taken King moment, which Taken King was the expansion for the first game that really like, there were so many people who loved, like, I think I maybe said this last week, but Destiny 1 had a very particular narrative where it reviewed very averagely but people fucking loved it. Mm. And it was because it really revealed itself in the end game, which was kind of grindy and weird and, and had lots of issues, but it had all this depth and these mad ideas and these crazy encounters. And, and, and actually I think really interesting writing kind of lurking underneath the kind of on the surface writing of the game. Mm. And then this had this expansion in the second, in the, at the end of the first year, a year after it came out where suddenly uh, a lot of the kind of mechanical issues were fixed. And also the sort of storytelling side of it was elevated quite substantially as well. Alex, did you, were you among the people who got into the worm books? Uh, was that, that was, that was, was the that sort of taking King like law cards, the out of game stuff. Yeah, I did, I did read a few of them, but didn't earn enough of them to be able to, right. to like, which is legitimately, what's going on. I think, great bit of SF. It was, it was right. nicely, beautifully written. Yeah. yeah. Um, this is like one thing I think I said last week and I would, I would, uh, uh, say again is, uh, Destiny 2, when they, when it came out, they'd obviously written a new story, not acknowledging the fact that a lot of the players were going to be on PC and playing it for the first time and you know, not necessarily like straight in the deep end of Destiny 1 kind of lore. This is straight in the deep end of Destiny 1 lore. Like I, you know, to the extent that, um, and I was, I was like, I, I remember having this feeling as I finished it playing the stuff that I hadn't played by the time when we recorded the podcast last week, uh, where when it, I'm not going to spoil anything about it, but finishing it, like I was, I felt the thing that I love feeling in games, which is I was so grateful that I'd invested the time that I had both playing and thinking about the first game because I'm the kind of person who likes to read the lore and kind of absorb that stuff. Uh, the payoff for things like, and I can tell when a writer's room is having a good time. <laughs> and I think for a long time, the, the destiny to writer's room are having a good time because it's a lot funnier than the first game. There are a lot more one liners. There's good one liners in it. Um, but this one isn't as funny. It's just. It's them having fun with the law, which is something that I think is legitimately fun. Like, and, but it's only, it's only justifiable if you're passing that fun onto the player. And there's like lines of, you know, sort of maybe throwaway dialogue in towards the end of Forsaken that like a proper, like back of the neck hair raising stuff. If you have been paying attention to like item descriptions since the first game, <laughs> like, and that is like, that is a narrow band of people that I appreciate, <laughs> but it isn't exclusively me. <laughs> and no, it's I, not. And this like, is something that I've loved yeah. about Bungie storytelling since Halo games, where they always had these kinds of like on the surface kind of bombast military sci-fi stories. And then there was always this thick vein of weirdness underneath that, like weird ideas about AI and kind of, and this kind of thing. And you could argue that they're not very effective as storytellers simply because that stuff wasn't surfaced unless you went looking for it. But I'm actually kind of a big fan of that. And I think that lore isn't for everybody. And that if people, you know, it's simply like, it's good to have something for people who want to go find it and talk about it and, and participate in it. But I think the, the only thing that I would criticize for that is, is not that it, they didn't service it, but just like that, the, they didn't give enough hints of the strangeness underneath the mm. bomb, bombast. If they just at least kind of gave a flavor. I think Destiny's better for that because yeah. I think it's on the surface weirder than Halo ever was because yeah, Halo had yeah, yeah. its thing of being very clearly like, 
It's human characters were clearly an analogy for the U.S. military. Yeah. It was, you know, uh, whereas Halo, who, oh, sorry, in Destiny, who you are is a lot weirder. Its ideas are a lot stranger on the surface. It's much more fantasy in it and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and so the payoff at the end and, and, uh, it does something pretty big. Like it really does like hold back on its true end game area until you've not just finished it, but done quite a long quest after finishing it. Hmm. And then it shows you what it's really about. And it's the uh, absolutely gorgeous environment like just like spectacular kind of full-on like if you think of and i think i've said this before but if you think of bungie as the company who kind of emerged from people got into halo for the first time and looked up at the skybox and saw the the curvature of the halo ring kind of stretching away into the sky and went like wow look at the sense of scale and mm. that kind of encounter with the sublime thing you get when you see something so vast they pulled that off with destiny 2 in a few ways but the final environment in forsaken really is just that like it's just like Fuck, look at this Mm. Look at this space thing. Um, and it's super cool. I really, 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 really fancy it, basically. Mm. <laughs> and them. But thing I'd like to talk about briefly is Gambit, which is the new PvP mode they've introduced. Yeah. And this is super interesting because this at first I, I thought was like, oh, that sounds fun. But actually having played it loads and like literally spent like a big chunk of weekend sat with a friend just playing it for hours. Like it's properly good. Like someone has kind of invented a new form of FPS. Oh, really? That, so that's interesting because, yeah, 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 I did think, hmm, that sounds like, fresh. It's the most successful marriage of the kinds of things I like about MOBAs, not specifically in terms of what you think of when you say that, but like the kind of rhythms, the kind of sense of the timing and strategy and, and strategic variability and kind of emergent potential of that kind of de- competitive design with what is good about shooters. And also it's really good because it specifically brings up what's good about destiny. So what it is, and I've not seen anything like it before, which is really rare in shooters. Now you get plenty of shooters that come out with like something like evolve that has like a big high concept, like you're a monster and you're, but rarely that's not sustainable or it, it ends up feeling gimmicky. And this feels like, Oh, like there's lots of things I love about destiny's PVP, but like this feels like, Oh, hang on. This is like pure destiny PVP now. And so the way it works is, it's two teams of four and both teams are loaded into their own versions of a map. So two teams are completely separate. Uh, they are technically, if, when, when, when sometimes the kill cam goes a little bit weird, you can tell that it's literally the same map twice on two in the same environment, but they can't see each other. So, you know, it's hmm. sort of like mirror, mirror worlds basically. And, uh, in this map and different, the map is sort of divided up into areas and in the center is uh, like a kind of space magic bank, basically. <laughs> And, um, it's the way they've managed to tie this into the law is crazy. <laughs> and the fact that they've even made, managed to make it quite a significant law thing is even crazier. But, uh, and then in different quadrants of the map, uh, enemies will start to arrive and you, it's a random, it's in you know, each match, both teams face the same enemies, but each match is like a different enemy faction. <clears throat> so you have to, so that's strategic layer one. Initially, when you start playing, it doesn't matter that much. But actually, if you play Destiny, then you know that different factions require a slightly different set of knowledge and skills. And this is the stuff you're building up just playing the game normally. Um, and you get told which one it is, and then you fight that faction. Every enemy you kill drops at least one sort of um, moat of light, like this kind of pickup that you pick up. And uh, you can carry a maximum of 15 of them. And your goal is on pa- basically just to get them and then bank them in the well at the center of the map. Um, then when you have, your team has collected 75 of them, the well, uh, goes away and is replaced with a boss called a primeval and lots, and the enemies that spawn change completely. And the first team 
to kill their primeval wins the round. And then it's best of three. So you play three rounds. The things that complex add complexity and depth to this, which is super cool, is like, so um, when you when you finally bank, if you die at any point, uh, you lose every moat that you're carrying. They don't get dropped. You lose them. They're gone forever. Um, so obviously, you know, at the basic level, like PVE skill, being able to kill enemies safely, not over push, not overextend and bank things is a big consideration. And there's the drama of when do you bank, etc. Uh, when you bank, if you have, if you bank five to 10, uh, five to nine moats, you spawn a little enemy on your opponent's side. Um, if you have 10, it's a medium enemy. And if you have all 15, it's a big enemy. And those are called blockers. And while they are alive, the enemy's bank retreats into the ground and can't be deposited in. So there's this strategy to like, do you hold on and go for like, do four big blockers at the same time, which point that's 60, that's all of your kind of available like moats. Or do you, the thing that I try to do is like get five points as fast as possible, even if the rest of my team is still killing enemies and farming and then get back and get one blocker in. Cause you can often set enemy teams off their tempo. Like no one's ready to deal with the blocker. So they go to try and deposit everything they're holding and then they have to deal with this blocker and it slows them down in some key way. The other thing is when your team passes over certain thresholds of moats deposited. So 25, 50, um, you a portal opens and that portal sends one player from your team to the other side is it do you choose who that person it's is? whoever jumps through the portal first right so <laughs> you you go through and you spawn on their side of the map in a random place and you have 30 seconds in their zone and you can and you can obviously kill them and take away their moats or if you do that while the primeval is alive every kill you get heals the primeval so it's a really cool dynamic. And then the, the, the status bar at the top of the screen shows you not just how many moats each team has deposited, but also shows you how many are in hand at the moment. So obviously initially when you start playing, people just like dive through the portal as soon as it's available. But this huge strategy in like, oh shit, they've got loads of moats in hand right now. This is a really good time to invade them. Or we've just stoked loads of moats. Often, obviously, the portal opens after you've just deposited. So if you've just deposited, you've probably just spawned blockers. So sometimes it's worth sending someone through to defend the blockers. Hmm. And sort of, but there's so much depth in like when it's a good idea to go Ooh. through and when it's not a good idea to go through. And obviously, it means a lot to be effective. Like if you go through and can kill the entire team, that's amazing. But and if you fuck up, it's huge because that's the only opportunity you get to invade. The other thing is this interacts naturally with all of Destiny's other systems. So every player has a slow building super. And depend on the subclass you're playing, that super ability might be better at farming enemies, it might be better at dealing with the boss, or it might be better at killing other players. And the fact that yours is ready might mean you are the person who should go through the portal. So it rewards coordination and communication, like, you know, or I don't have, like, obviously, if you are, like, stand, if you're trying to, if you've got 14 moats and you're trying to get your 15th moat, you definitely shouldn't be the person who goes through the portal. Because if you die, you're losing them on your opponent's side. Like, mm -hmm. it's, there's just, right. you know, like, it's a terrible idea. And I've been playing it a lot with one friend or, or two friends and it's a four player game. And that's been really, really rewarding. Like early days of Dota rewarding, like um really exciting. Like I've seen matches end at the last minute, like had these heroic finales where, you know, you can see the health bar of their primeval getting chunked down bit by bit. And you go through the portal and manage to kill their entire team and slow them down just long enough for your team to kill yours. And I've seen teams come back from like impossible disadvantages and all these, all the things I look for in a good competitive mode. The downside to all of this, and I, this is the great Dota defense, but because all of those things are possible, the inverse is also possible. So 
you know, like any objective-based FPS mode, you can be fucked over by your teammates <laughs> in spectacular ways. The person who, ca- who, the person who runs ahead of you picks up all the modes and falls off the level. <laughs> like, you know, like all of this stuff, like, you, you know, and it can be like pad chuckingly, you know, mouse breakingly frustrating in that moment because like, you know, and this is what, like for me, it's like, this is the, the eternal double bind of like really good competitive modes where it's like a really good team competitive game requires people to take on different roles and depend on each other and how communicate and have a plan. And people are terrible and all of those <laughs> things and should never be asked to do them. And deathmatch is fine. <laughs> like, and so, you know, I've had like, it's been really fun playing with people. And I think it's, I think I would defend their right to design a mode that is better if you choose to play with your friends. Because they can't fix matchmaking. They, you know, that is a, that is a standard feature of, of, um, of Destiny in the, you know, the, the trials of a rice is a very kind of like, yeah. you don't play that with strangers. No, for sure. Um, but this, you know, like it can be, you know, I can understand why people might sort of like flip the table over it because it can be so galling if, um, you know, let's say, you know, I've got my supers ready and I don't, I'm not carrying any moats and it's, I'm really the person who should go through the portal. And then a guy dives through it with 15 of our moats. And then, and it's like, there's like, it, like Dota, it allows for like things that are unambiguously fuck ups. Like, I think there's often like a lot of like flex in like, if you're playing Team Fortress 2, for example, and you're not quite or Overwatch and you're not quite on the point enough as you should be, your failure is probably analog enough that people won't, won't really notice. They might notice that your KD is bad or something like that, but you know, you haven't done one thing that has just completely <laughs> fucked it up f- for everybody else. Like you can't accidentally like, Oh shit. Sorry guys. I pushed the payload in the sea. <laughs> like, you know, like I pushed it back to the start. Like, those games, those games place a limit on like, I, maybe this is one of the reasons when team fortress kind of really moved over to payload style maps. One of the reasons for this is payload. I hate payload, but one of the reasons payload's good is it is less possible to utterly beef it yeah. than it is with capture the flag. Where by it's being like, there, look at me, I've got the, oh shit. Yeah. Like, by being there, all you can do is sort of be mildly positive. Or yeah. If you are kind of like a, a net, a net positive to your team and you're near the payload, you're golden. Mm. There's no like, I got the flag. <laughs> oh, I've fallen off something like, you know, none of that. And this is all that was, of that. That was the design of payload as well. Right. It was, it was a substitute for the VIP mode they used to have in mm. old Team Fortress where one player is the VIP. The enemy's objective is just to kill them. And they wanted to have that sense of like everyone rallying around this one objective that's moving and change the situation is changing all the time. But they didn't want the situation where like if some asshole is the VIP and they just don't know what the fuck they're doing, it's just a shit match. And so they made the VIP, uh, in like, endlessly progressing minecart <laughs> well i know this is the thing it's like this is i mean this is and they were they were right but like the kind of the the sad cold reality of valve's logic there is that people aren't fun do you know what's fun a very slow train <laughs> <laughs> like whereas like i played so much team fortress classic as a kid and like vip was one of my favorite modes because it created stories like mm. memorable stories of like crazy last minute dashes for freedom and and big big fuck ups and there isn't room for that in payload you're either pushing the payload or you're not and like now thanks to overwatch just adopting that mode wholesale from from tf2 that's kind of like a meme like oh no one no one pushes the payload and it's like it's because it's fucking boring <laughs> it's because it's a bad idea really like it it, it it's it sanitizes or it's, it makes the experience safe for people but it's 
but it's not like you should be able to have the the rough with the smooth right you should be able to occasionally have the asshole vip in gambit like what would it be like if when someone goes through the portal they just sort of drop their moats and anyone else can pick them up so then they're sort of saved in that way i think i think it would diminish the role taking i think what's right. what, what it benefits from is the fact that um it's not like a uh a game where your role is like i i really love any any multiplayer game where your role is dependent is as much your play style as the class you chose hmm. So every class in Destiny can do any of the things that players might need to do in, in a game of Gambit because roles are not mandated by the game. But as you play more and you become more experienced, you understand that really you should have at least a plan for what different players are going to do in different circumstances to be efficient. So for example, like the thing we started doing is like one person goes out and gets five moats as fast as possible to get that first blocker out to try and throw the enemy team off. And that person should be given priority for those moats. So don't get in their way. You know, don't go and pick something up if it's the first enemies to die. But also that player will then stick around on the pad where the bank is for like a couple of seconds, 10 seconds, because they're not wasting any time because three people is fine to farm the remaining enemies. And if your opponent is also quick, to get a oh, blocker yeah. out they are then there to destroy it immediately because this little game of invisible kind of tempo swapping <laughs> happening behind the scenes and that is really really close to how destiny's pve raids are designed like mm, does sound very much like, like a lot of like learning how a destiny one raid or destiny two raid in- encounter works is understanding that like you initially encounter it as just chaos and then you learn to break it down into jobs and obviously the community as a whole will eventually kind of figure out optimal strategies but a lot of the fun of doing it blind is when you and your friends figure out like a kind of like the thing i would compare it to is a zactronics puzzle like coming up with your solution like you're given this problem and all these moving parts and like i've got to run out of the shield at this point and get the buff from this guy and then run back into the shield and i'll give it to you and you'll take it over there and you kind of you want to design a set of rules basically like yeah Yeah. like blocker is in like player a b yeah like okay so you know we know that for example we have a plan our plan is Chris goes in and Chris gets five moats and deposits five. Then, I don't know, Dave goes and gets 15 and deposits um, 15. And then Nathan comes back and deposits 10. And when Nathan deposits 10, that'll push us over the 25 threshold. So Dave will go back through the portal to the other side. And, you know, and he will then do the, if if they have a lot of... You've un- been playing with Dave and Nathan. I have. I've been at the PlayStation Access office a lot recently. Oh, dude. But like, like the... um, uh, But that's what I mean, right? You have this thing, like, if they have loads of... Un, unbanked moats in hand then we go through if not we wait until they're about to get over their invasion threshold then we try and stop them like or you know i'm saving up for i'm at 13 moats and i'm saving up for a big blocker but i've just seen that they have just banked and we don't have a blocker over there and they have 24 so if they get one more they're going to invade us so i'll bank now take the hit but stop them from banking so that we can invade and they can't and all these little nested decisions that are so much more interesting than just they are so much more interesting than just you got to do this in well, this it's, order. It's, like, it's, it's more interesting. That the interesting thing is it's, not, it's more interesting than the Titanfall bank. I can't remember what the mode is now. Uh, bounty? Bounty, yeah, where you kind of, you collect money and you've got to bank it in, in between sort of waves. Yeah. But like, you're not playing as a team. Like, you just, like, not in any normal way. And you, you know, like, no. not in a kind of a, a casual match. Sort of, you could just see people dying. I die all the time. I always fuck it up. And it's like, you know the stakes aren't quite high enough that's the thing there's no and you're not playing close to each other you're not together like there are there obviously there are kind of you know sort of 
NPCs that you're fighting rather than other mm. players mostly. And so it's got a lot of some of the similar ideas, but like this sounds way Titanfall, Titanfall's a much really good comparison, actually. Like, I think the other thing about it is obviously I probably made it sound super intricate and complicated. I think it can be, but also if you only want to fight the monsters, that is a meaningful way of participating. Mm. Like occasionally you'll have to run away from an enemy invader uh, and hide. But if you, you know, it's like a, it's like a kind of rare example of a PVP mode where you never have to shoot at another player unless you choose to. Mm. Like, obviously, if you're being chased by an invader, they glow red. You're probably going to want to shoot back. But like, you know, and that's really cool because uh, I love and I'll, I played so much Destiny because it's just basic monster shooting feel is so good. And you can sort of style on monsters in a way that you can't style on, on other players. And so that you can just do that. You can just run around fighting the cool monsters and having a good time and picking up the moats and banking them and then fight the big monster and win. And every now and then a big glowing red person will try and kill you. But that's, you know, that's the extent. So I just realized something because when I first read about it, I thought, oh God, you go through there and then you're just going to get shot to pieces really quickly. But like them shooting you is a waste of their sort of time and bullets. Like you, you kind of don't really want to be shooting it. Like, oh, that's interesting. Anyway, that yeah. just illustrates so, well, the fucking point, really. The, it's design yeah. things. So you can almost see dynamics. the playtesting that went into this yeah. and the balancing of it. So mm-hmm. invaders gain an overshield, which means you have a double shield. Oh, really? Mm. You glow red so they can see you easily, but you can see them through walls. <laughs> and you can also see how many moats they're all carrying. So but oh, you've nice. only got 30 <laughs> seconds. So you've only got 30 seconds. So if there's 15 moat guy over here and he's running around, maybe you just try and make a beeline for him. Um, but like, and after you get 30 seconds, you get teleported back to your other side. And as ever with Destiny, it does very good announcer work. So you get a lot of like, your teammates back and he killed four people. Is it, <laughs> is, 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 it's an American doing the announcing. Is that right? Yes. Or is it, or it's is a new it... character. Oh. It's not Shax, unfortunately. Oh, I like Shax. I like Shax as well, but Shax still gets a lot of mileage out of the crucible and they can't okay. just, they got to give that guy. He can't cover both. No, he's very good though. He is extremely good. Okay. Anyway, anyway, the, the new, actually, no, sorry, the, the, the Gambit guy's all right. Like he's, he's sort of like a cowboy. Not sure why. Mm. <laughs> Space uh, cowboy. Yeah. Mm. Um, but yeah. yeah. This, it's not the same mechanically, but this, uh, this idea of like both teams are playing on the same map, but it's two different instances of the same map kind of thing. Um, really reminds me of a very inventive map for, I think, Unreal Tournament 2004 by uh, Angel Mapper, who was this incredible um, level designer for UT, uh, just community stuff. Um, but everything she did was uh, just in- super smart and inventive. And this map was a sort of like docks type area with a, a sort of a shore. And then uh, you could go inside like a cave. And then at the back of the cave, there was a portal. And when you go through the portal, you're back in the exact same cave, but at a different time of day. And it was a capture the flag map. And so each team is in a different instance of the same place at a different time. Oh, that's really and cool. And the, the flag is in the same place in both, in, in both places. Um, and when you're in your side, uh, or in either side, you can see a ghost of the enemy team where they are on their side. Huh. So on your side, basically you're seeing your teammates for real and you're seeing the enemies in ghosts. And you know, when you go through the portal, you're going to see them there. So like, you know, you can camp the portal if you like, but everyone can see that you're standing there because they can see the ghosts. As Alex dropping his phone, everybody. So impressed. His phone just threw from his hand. They see your ghosts? <laughs> Time ghost. ghost <laughs> Alex spooked. More at 10. I don't remember the name of the map, but it was by Angel. That sounds Mapper. cool. That does sound cool. 
Yeah, it's great, basically. And I, I said I wasn't going to wang on about Destiny, then I wanged on about Destiny, but it's really good. <laughs> and it's on PC now, so I'm allowed to wang on about it. <laughs> yeah. You should play it, Alex. I, yeah, it's all downloaded. I think after this, I might have a little tinkle. Have a good old tinkle. Mm. I also played a bit of uh, Concrete Jungle, which mm. I have talked about on this podcast before. Graham has talked about it on this podcast uh, many times <laughs> that long ago. Um, and I, I played it a bunch recently because I got an iPad and it's on iPad too, but it's also on um, PC and that's where I played most of it. And uh, this is the game where like, you're building a city on a very... As a grid that's sort of, I think it's like five tiles wide or something. Um, but, uh, as you complete rows on that grid, they disappear and then the whole city moves along one, one grid square and, uh, just continues mm. going on what, like a conveyor belt. Um, and what you're trying to do is get a lot of points in each column. Um, and so, like, you've got to get at least three points in each column and you get points by, uh, you, you place a school and that makes all the tiles near it have plus one. But you don't get any points for that unless you put a house on one of those plus one tiles and then it gets the plus one. But if you had like two schools either side, that's plus two. And then you put a house there because it's got like two different schools next to it. That's a really good house. (laughs) (laughs) That's how it works. Um, And but it's so like the thing that's amazing about it is it's just so like over developed <laughs> it's like there is uh, a shitload to it yeah they just they made that and then it's um uh cole jeffrey's a friend of mine um and uh he made that and then he just made like uh every there's a story driven campaign that's voiced every character in it uh is not only a unique voice character in the story and has dialogue and their own motivations and stuff they also have their own unique tech tree that you can level up with uh when you place like shops and stuff you get more economy there's an economy system when you level up with economy you get like to buy a new card to add to your deck it's a deck builder as well um and then there's a versus mode uh, even in single player there's a versus mode and that's the part i've been playing a lot lately because uh, it's it's amazing it, it completely um uh it's like twice as good as the regular game because <laughs> you are trying to make your side of the street good and their side of the street bad <laughs> and uh, each, but each column like so you, in each column you have a certain amount of points and they have a certain amount of points you know if you have that school and the house arrangement you've got your two you know, your, your one point from your uh, house that's collecting on the school if you put the school too close to the edge of your territory they could put a house there and benefit from it too so what you really want to do is put like a factory on the edge of your territory so that just pollutes up their spaces and now they can't get any good points from it um, but the thing that makes it really, really good is that if you have more points than them in that column, you get their points as well. So, uh, if they don't put anything in that column, then you just get your points and it's, it's good, but it's not great. But if they've invested heavily in the column and then you realize I can beat them, I can get more than five points in this column. I can get six. And if I get six, not only do I get six, but they lose five and I gain five. <laughs> like it's a huge, huge deal to, um, do that. And even with the AI, which I think, I don't, I don't know how sophisticated the AI is, but you definitely, I get into mind games with it. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> uh, it is decided to invest it. It's, it's confident they can do it because it's seen I've only got two free tiles left in this column and it's already got all this other stuff. But I know if I just place one thing in there, I've got a gazebo. A gazebo makes styles next to it fucking Damn, son. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and if I, if I later put a bus stop somewhere, fuck. Bus stops are incredible because bus stops can buff like any point collecting building, even if they're nowhere near it. And That's true in real else. life as yeah, well. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> oh man. Does it have any form of announcer? 
Um, no, I, <laughs> I just like the Unreal Tournament guy. Where the fuck is he now? Because like, characters stop. You are like fighting a specific other character, and he will say stuff about like, "Oh, uh, this is going well for me, or it's going badly." Okay, no, that needs like, what was that? gazebo. <laughs> <laughs> Holy <Multi> shit! Gazebo. <laughs> Shopping center. <laughs> and so it's awesome, but also I hit a brick wall in the campaign. I don't think I've ever got this far before because I'm I'm doing my next mission is a versus mode against a woman who runs prisons, <laughs> and this is just like blowing my mind and ruining all my strategies because. uh she can place a prison and a prison gets the inverse of the points. So if you make an area terrible and she puts a prison there, she gets loads of points for it. And if you make an area good, um, then she would theoretically get negative points for it, but she wouldn't put a prison there because it's good. <laughs> and so this is just like everything I can do that would normally screw over an opponent helps her. Everything I can do that would, you know, help an opponent or whatever, she could just put a regular house on it and get the points anyway. So it's just like, ah, anything I do is bad. And I don't know how to defeat her. <laughs> That's amazing. It, yeah, just as a game mechanic, it's like that thing of stealing their points is so compulsive, like, or compelling. Um, you, I'll just completely, I'll just let the rest of the city go to shit to win this one column, which is like <laughs> this one street. They've made it incredible. I've made it almost as incredible. And I know I can make it more incredible than that. <laughs> and I'll just like ruin everything else in the whole city to do it. That sounds actually great. I thought it was just the puzzle side. Back into it. Yeah, now I want to play. It's on my phone. It's been there for years. Yeah, there's so much to it. It's amazing. There's like there's two v (laughs) two as well, (laughs) like with AI or against other players. And yeah, it's mad. Ace. Hello. Hi, Tom. Let's do some questions. (laughs) Let's do some questions. Some questions right now. Let's do that. That was the segue we needed. (laughs) Uh, Our first question comes from Jonathan, who writes. Dear Cake Donut and Maple Bar, uh, sorry if that doesn't make any sense. I'm sure you have different kinds of donuts in the UK. I've really enjoyed a lot of those games that are repeatedly discussed in the Crate and Crowbar. I recently started playing Far Cry Primal, which falls into that category. The only other Far Cry game I've played was Blood Dragon, and I enjoyed it a lot. Two and a half hours into Primal, it's not doing anything for me. I'm considering dropping the game, which is atypical of my gaming habits. I usually give a game more of a chance before giving up. Do you have any advice on making Far Cry Primal more fun? Should I stick around until I've earned a certain skill or weapon? What element of the game really grabbed you? Tell me I'm doing it wrong and I'll give the game another chance. Thanks. That's for you, Tom. Yep. <laughs> my ears pricked up. Uh, I love Far Cry Primal. Um, I think it's my favorite of the Far Cry games. And my Far Cry games are very, very high in my general list. Um, for me, the thing that I love about all Far Cry games, and especially Far Cry Primal, is taking out outposts. Two and a half hours in, I feel like you should have at least encountered an outpost. I vaguely um, remember there's quite there's quite a lot of stuff. There is a lot of bullshit at the start, start and I, yeah. I will not defend it. <laughs> it's bad. <laughs> uh, as it is in all Far Cry games. Um uh but if you if you're out in the open world and they there are you know, you found some outposts. Bonfires are a little bit different. Bonfires are like mini outposts and there's not much to them. Um but the ones where, you know, people there's houses and there's people walking around and patrolling. Um uh try and take out one of those stealthily, like without anyone raising the alarm. And if you've done that and you still don't like the game, you can probably move on. Good advice. The next question comes from Scott, who writes, Greetings, crate dwellers. During a boss fight, when it's the sort of boss that spawns additional lesser enemies, do you kill the small fry first, or do you stay focused on the boss? (laughs) Obviously, if there are healers, you want them gone ASAP. But what if all of the ads are just plain old damage dudes? What does your approach say about you as a person? Keep up the good pods, Scott. 
<laughs> I, I don't know. And in every game, I just want the game to tell me. Just, <laughs> which one do I do? I don't know. Sometimes Put it's an arrow over the right eye. Be... And what does that say about you as a person? <laughs> I think that normally games actually want you to kill the ads. Mm, uh, yeah. But there are just some rare exceptions where it's actually better just to kill the boss because they're going to spawn so fast so much but it wants it wants you to be going oh i can just put a couple more shots on the yeah. boss and but then oh no it's spawned some and now they've killed me oh. slay the spire um yeah. uh has a lot of encounters right on this threshold where like you know it'll just be like two or three minions uh and so you think oh, i can just take those out because this guy's got like 97 health and these guys got 13 i'll take them out and then you take them out and he just as an action summons three more <laughs> it's like, well, can he just always do that? Because if Wait, so, there's no point in me ever attacking these guys. I should just entirely focus on him. But I'm, I'm still not 100% sure on the logic of like, can they just always summon three more every time they don't have any? So I think there's, there's at least one enemy that just after the initial set of minions is gone, he can't summon anymore or he never does. So I think, I think that, that I, I also go through worry. So I think that, that that's us as kind of our mental state is sort of wor- anxious. Am I doing anxiety. this right? Am yeah. I doing this yeah. right? I bet there are people who just either don't care. They're just slovenly, just slovenly awful people who just let the ads <laughs> pile up. Just bad Where they're just people, going just on, really... lazily just going on the boss. And then there are people who just, just go for the ads because they're control freaks. There's all, that's always me, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> when you go for the ads, isn't there that sense that, like, am I just wasting my life? Yeah. <laughs> Does yeah. this just go on indefinitely? Yeah. Is my, contr- my, my relentless, uh, uh, dominion over the world? No, I will control just... this environment. <laughs> I will control this environment and the things that happen in it. And more ads will spawn. And that's the only okay. one I can control. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> this is destiny for me it's like I can't, there's a there's a i don't know who tweeted it and it's a long time ago but i think about it a lot and it was it was a drawing done by someone's five-year-old son uh which was two circles in uh, two concentric circles and the the outside circle said something like um like i cannot control other people and the inside circle said i can control tank and that, <laughs> and that was all video games for me. <laughs> and, and yeah, I, that is, as the kids say, a big mood. A big mood. That, I think that's the source of my anxiety with it. It's like, this is the only thing I can control. So if I can't control this, like, <laughs> I don't know what I've got yeah, left. Oh God. Just tell me which one to kill. Yeah. I think I go to these like slovenly moods where it's like, you know, some of the, the, the edges start to fray and I just start to pour damage onto the boss. Cause it's like, fuck it. Fuck it. Yeah. Drown me in skeletons, Diablo. <laughs> I know you're just going to kill me for doing this, but I'm just going to buy it. Yeah, and the then, then you're like, no, get a yeah. hold of yourself. Clear the skeletons. <laughs> now that you mention Laoric in Diablo 3, I yeah. think that's one where you need to go for the boss, mostly. I feel like skeletons Somewhat, are yeah. not, not as much of a threat. Yeah. But I'm, I'm fucking straight up stuck on the first boss in Spider-Man on my PlayStation. <laughs> like, I cannot beat Fisk, and I beat, like, the first phase of him, but then the next phase he has, it's just that phase again, but he has shitloads of minions. And my instinct is like clear the minions first, but he's just got these unblockable attacks. And if I don't deal with him, it seems like it's unwinnable. And this is on easy mode. This is here, nerve. This is here. Yeah, yeah. You've really gotten to the core. That's a good question. Um, Yeah, like I just this is like the stuff that goes through your head as a as a game. Like all Mm. of us have had this thought. All of us have had a situation where if I get a boss with a bunch of minions, which should I take out first? I don't know. 
Yeah, exactly. And like, oh, well, it's interesting. Like, this is a, um, and another thing that is very good about Destiny 2's Gambit mode <laughs> is it ends with exactly this because the, the, the boss you spawn at the end also spawns loads of minions and killing the minions gives you a stacking buff that makes you do more damage to the boss. Oh, cool. Uh, and that is very clever because it's again another way for players to fuck up, but it means that like, there is a reason to do both, but there's also sometimes a pressing concern, which is the minions are killing me mm. or and if we die, we heal the boss. So that dynamic is actually much, much cleverer. Yeah. Uh, but when you do get the max buff, suddenly the boss can just start melting and that's very satisfying. And then sometimes when you have the max buff, you have to communicate that to your team and say like, don't, don't invade now. Don't play more minions. Just this is the time. Do it. Get, fire the big guns at the big ghost skeleton. <laughs> Cause uh, that plays into a sort of like a, <clears throat> there are these, um, so, so this exists in the sort of the, click, the clicker games where you, you have to, you know, the, the best strategy to grow fast is to keep investing in new things. Like, yes, that will eviscerate all the money you've accrued to that point because, you know, uh, but it will mean you earn faster. And actually that is way better over time than keeping your hmm. kind of slowly growing sort of funds. Um, and, and that, that gambit thing is squarely in that because yeah. when you, when you in a clicker game, when you kind of, you sort of think, oh, I've just, spent two hours spending it like i've got three thousand cookies and i like i'm now i'm about to spend it on a like just a thing that just increases it by four percent you know but then mm. nope that is literally the thing you've got to do wow yeah good question mm. next question is really good as well it's more of a statement it's more of a pitch to be honest but it's a really good mm. one it comes from kevin who writes Dear CNC, after listening to a recent Waypoint podcast about the new Tomb Raider and dealing with the responsibility of a game about literally robbing tombs, I begin think, began thinking of a game where you spend your time returning these objects to their rightful resting places. To make things interesting, what if these were magical artifacts once stolen by your ancestors? As you returned them, you became weaker and weaker, going from a near god to mere mortal at the final destination. As you lose your OP abilities, you could perhaps make up for it in part by mastering the systems of combat. Could such a reverse progression work? Thanks to the great pods, Kevin. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, this ties into two different things that I had already had thoughts about. One is like ages and ages ago, the thing about Hitman. And um, uh, as I got better at that game, I used less and less powerful tools to do my objectives. Like, I mean, mm. it's the, the Leon thing, right? The last weapon you mm. burn is the knife. Um, and I always thought it'd be cool. There's a game. <laughs> the Leon upgrade system. <laughs> yes. The, Leon the first weapon system. you learn is fireball. <laughs> Uh, I always thought that it would be cool to make a Hitman game where, like, you are in some kind of, like, sci-fi city. Um, they have, you know, weapon scanning technology or whatever. And so in, like, the Badlands where you start, you can use fucking rocket launchers and machine mm. guns and whatever. And then as you get closer and closer to the city, security restrictions get tighter and tighter and you can take fewer and fewer weapons in. And so you lose access to this stuff rather than gaining. Uh, and as you get better and better, you know, ultimately you're just trying to kill the target with, like, no equipment at all. Because uh, in Hitman, you actually do you know, through learning the game, figure out how to do stuff like that. Um, but then, yeah, also there's this article going around lately about, um, uh, a string of thefts, uh, oh, yeah. of, of museums that all seem to be of Chinese artifacts that were kind of, uh, you know, taken, uh, perhaps unjustly from their, uh, original, uh, country. And there's a theory that, you know, Either the Chinese government or someone in China is just hiring thieves to steal back Chinese artifacts that, you know, uh, should belong to them. 
And actually, our, our friend Marsh was saying, like, that would be a cool game. And I had the exact same thought, like, that's a great premise for a game. But actually, I really like, um, is it Kevin? Yeah. Uh, uh, Kevin's idea that it's your ancestors who stole them. So you don't mm. get to be righteous about it. Like, you can't be yeah. like, oh, these are my people's artifacts. I'm taking them back. It's like, no, sorry. I'm from the people who stole them. <laughs> I'm going to help you get them back now. <laughs> I was thinking that this obviously the sort of reverse RPG is one angle here, but I think reverse Castlevania is the other or reverse Metrovania where it's like the artifacts aren't just like, you know, 5% extra health or something, but like something that materially changes what you can do to the environment. Hmm. So I mean, th- those games often, a lot of them start you with, with very powerful and then there's an event. Like, yeah, yeah. You get beaten up by Ridley and your suit explodes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's true. Although I was thinking of, like, I was just trying to think that just when, after I read this question, how this might work. And I think it'd be interesting to have, like, maybe like a roguelike or something where you start with, like, a random set of powerful upgrades. And beating the game means handing all of those upgrades back in hmm. at the appropriate places. But maybe each of them allows you to kind of, like, substantially bypass. Like, you know, so the, the example is always, like, the Metro, the rocket launcher that lets you open the rocket launcher doors in Metroid or something. But like, for, for obviously for design purposes, it's like every, every locked door has an alternate pathway of some kind. It's just likely to be very difficult. And the, the game is in figuring out what order, you know, maybe if your particular upgrades are randomly assigned and that changes something about the way you approach the game anyway. It's a bit like starting Spelunky with jetpack, shotgun, and a few <laughs> other things, but you know, you have to handle these things in. So the strategy is in when, when do you want to get rid of the shotgun versus when do you want to get rid of the jetpack, yeah. for example. Give them to the fucking tunnel maker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's kind of in there. Like, that'd be a kind of neat way of exploring that. Not that that's necessarily the... I think it would feel really depressing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is why I think it would have to be a roguelike. I think if it was something you played quickly... Yeah, like, there's. I, I think you have to sort of like... This is definitely the stick, and I think there has to be a carrot as well. And it, yeah. it can be... It doesn't have to be a material <clears throat> award. It could be just like... You know, here's the game. You start with this awesome equipment. You play it. You've won it. Well done. If you want to win prestige level one, if you want even more smiling faces of the people that you see, yeah, it'd be be interesting (laughs) if, like, if handing something back made certain enemies neutral. (laughs) So once you've handed in the shotgun. The pe- oh, he hasn't the, got the a sh- sacred shotgun. The, no, shot- no, the shotgun people him. are like non-aggressive until <laughs> you aggro them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, the, you know they don't aggro you. Basically, <laughs> it's no wonder they were annoyed at you at first. Like you walk into there, that's just my using dad. One of their people as a tool. <laughs> exactly. Oi, oi, that's my uncle Kevin. Hey, give Clive back. <laughs> oh, sorry, he's not carrying a shotgun. Let him through. <laughs> But you know what I mean. Then you, you jetpack into jetpack land. You're like, give us back Allison. <laughs> I think that's a great idea. We've, I'm sure we've had this conversation before. Like, maybe not on the podcast, but I'm sure we've talked about reverse progression mm. as an idea. But I'm really into it. Like, it was something I really wanted to do in a particular pen and paper campaign. Um, but it didn't get, actually, it was something I wanted to do in our Numenera campaign way back when, but we didn't really get to it because we kind of, that kind of wrapped up on a... I lost an arm. You did lose, <laughs> you did lose an arm. You did lose an arm. But that was sort of the ending. And then, <laughs> lost an arm. Um, but yeah, that was something I've always really wanted to do is like the reverse dungeon, basically. Mm. The, mm. the dungeon where, where the clothes fall off, which is the <laughs> ideal place to have an automatic toilet right at the end. <laughs> Good. Good. 
like sexiest dungeon uh next is aiden who writes hi do you worry about commenting on game design when you're writing articles about games for fear of playing backseat game designer does that change once you're involved in the production of games such as tom f and lately chris thanks aiden i think we've all been involved in the production of games at this point yeah we? Well, <laughs> here, yeah um but yeah i did not hold back from doing this no. as a game journalist. well i think to some extent this is called criticism and that's okay <laughs> like but also I did, um, when I did criticize game design, I was, um, very informed by things people had told me in interviews. You know, I would, mm, I would put yeah. these ideas to them and they would respond, oh, you can't do that for some technical reason. They'd be like, oh shit. Okay. Um, and so I learned a lot through doing the job without, um, yeah, right. Like, uh, pretending I was a great well, game I'll designer. put it this way. Was some of the attraction of this job to you in that period because you got to talk to people about game design? Uh, yeah, I'm sure. Um, and in particular, it was like, I had all these ideas and I would run them by game designers yeah. when I interviewed them, uh, without any like strategy for like, oh, I'm going to be a game designer after this, but you know, just. What just... about a game, right? Where <laughs> I would. Has anyone done that to you yet? Every time I interviewed Robin Walker about Team Fortress 2, uh, we just got into an argument. I would just always, I would come with just an agenda because I was super into this game and yeah. I had ideas about how it could be better. And I would just put these to him and just like, if he didn't, whatever answer he gave me, it wouldn't be good enough. He'd be like, nope, you're wrong because of this. And we'd have a, like a really good debate about it um and at the end of it i don't know if we got if i got a good article or if he managed to promote his game but yeah <laughs> i certainly learned a lot as a game designer yeah, I've, I've i've definitely had completely unusable interviews which are perfectly <laughs> good conversations but are like it's it's like there's nothing i can pull from this really it's just i <laughs> have come into this because i want to talk about this thing and yeah and there's really nothing to be gained from it other than like maybe as a podcast <laughs> so i don't know i don't know if that speaks to a kind of interest that predates journalism specifically but you know i i, I certainly i kind of get the point um uh, because obviously there are a lot of lived experiences of development that you wouldn't necessarily have i think something that i've observed is like so like before i was a games journalist my job was in software project management um so i had some pretty like lived experience of just how making software happens mm. before writing about games and i remember being at um one of my first ever studio visits and kind of kind of being delighted that I could use my understanding of agile methodology to kind of like <laughs> push an interview to a, a different level, right? Not just how the company works, but like, oh, I get how it works, you know, yeah. um, because coming in with life experiences is valuable because games development is not a vacuum. It's, it's still yeah. part of the ecosystem of work. I think it's definitely a danger when you're kind of rookie level and you kind of think you understand games. Like yeah. you think you understand the, the reasons why things are mm. and you kind of go in and there's sort of like, Nah, and then you're going to realize, oh shit, I don't know anything at all. I think the classic example of that is like games journalists commenting on engines, just saying, oh, this mm. is bad because it's in Unreal yeah. Engine. Or it's yeah, like, yeah. Oh, obviously you can see that Unity Engine can't keep up with this or whatever. And actually it's, it has nothing to do with the engine yeah. that it's programmed in. Yeah. Yeah. Have you, have you guys ever had moments like that where like things you said or thought as a journalist, now that you know more about game development, you realize, oh shit, that was wrong? I think it's more that I have moments where I know that I have bought into other people's excitement about something hmm. as expressed in a public context when they're talking to me or other press without realizing that there's probably a lot of shit going on. Hmm. Like, you know what I mean? A lot of games that I, I think, you know, that, that, you know, I think there was a time where I didn't really appreciate that. Like every project of any kind is compromised by the process of its production. Yeah. That the people who are like, you know, and when you have like really like my favorite conversations with developers, when I was starting out were always at like, 
you know, over lunch or a drink or something. Like it was always, it was never really the formal interview context. Yeah. It was always like, but what we're trying to do is this. And you get this understanding, the sense of understanding, but something that's true of both that process and people generally is that people are giving you their best selves in that moment. And they're giving <laughs> you their best, what, you know, the dream of the project. And then you find out maybe years later when the, the post, the, the in-depth post-mortem article is written probably by Alex, <laughs> that, um, that, that like, Oh, things were actually really shit for them at that time. And they just mm. weren't showing you that. And you wanted to believe, you know what I mean? That kind of misunderstanding yeah. and that, that naivety. And I think there's a sort of like, you, you want to believe that it's going to be a good game because like that gives you the reason why you would write this fucking article in the first yeah. place. And like you, you've flown there and you want this game to be good. You're interested in it most likely. And you kind of, and they want you to think it's going to be good so that you write nice yeah, things. Yeah. And, and you want to be so liked. So it's like, actually, <laughs> there's a little kind of like you're both sort of, yeah, yeah, yeah this game is good. Yeah. 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 Yeah, like, and, mm. and I, you know, I think, I don't think I, I fully regret any, like, review score I've ever given or anything like that at the end of the day. But there's definitely been times where, you know, I've really wanted to give, like, I, I can give you a recent example of this, well, recent, like, EverQuest Next. The game mm. doesn't exist now. And, but I, I was, I think I mentioned this in the last pod, but I was there when they announced it. I was kind of like hanging out with those developers. And obviously there's a generation of, of thought in, in games media now that says that that is compromising. And I don't think it is. I don't, I don't think it's compromising unless you are easily compromised to just see the human side of a project and yeah. what it means to the people making mm. it. I think that's actually being and, a good And that journalist. is a truth. Yeah. Yes. It is like being a good journalist to be able to participate in that and, and enjoy it, but also step aside from it. And, in that moment, <clears throat> I remember because I did the cover feature. I was editor of Gamer at the time. I was acting editor for Graham Left, and um, really like being on this crossroads. Like this is so ambitious, and it might simply not happen. But in this moment, this is the like apex of optimism for this vastly ambitious thing. Mm. And so there is really no reason for me to do anything but like present the optimism in the developer's own terms because no one's being asked to put money down right now. Yeah, it's not a danger to someone's wallet. So is cynicism really warranted? Like you put an element of like, this is obviously very ambitious and it might not happen, but it's almost like, you know, the decision was simply to let the reader enjoy yeah. the optimism of that moment. And that has a, that's a, a much more, that's a quite nuanced thing that has a complicated relationship with like hype cycles and what ends up causing these big backlashes after the fact and that kind of thing. Yeah. I always felt like the, sort of the high level decision of what to cover uh, was rarely in my hands. I was always, you know, below that rank. And then when I was asked to cover something at preview stage, uh, it would, if I had concerns, I'd certainly talk about those concerns. And I did with, um, uh, with many games that, you know, uh, that I, you know, didn't, that I had reservations about a preview, but also the very act of previewing something. If you like go to the developer studio and you talk to them and you, you literally look at this game for like, two or more days you are going to find interesting things about it like there's always something interesting there yeah. there's always something to talk about there's always uh i you know pretty much every time i was previewing a game i found something cool about it and i was uh, you know um it was at the very least interesting like my sometimes i'd walk away thinking i don't think i'm going to play this when it comes out but it's still i saw like how the artists came up with uh, yeah, you can zoom in enough on any given game project to find something that's cool about it. There are there are plenty of examples of like you know sausage factory game making in the industry, but for the you know there's also like the vast majority of the time people are working on something they care about, even if it doesn't turn out great. Yeah, and if it doesn't turn out great, there's usually like a reason it doesn't turn out great. I'll say this: like I feel like that experience of game development and like 
the experience granted to me by being a games journalist of games channel games development and and something that i think we've all encountered talking to games developers or, or working with game developers working as game developers is games journalists see far more of the industry than the majority yes. of game developers ever will yeah <laughs> like if you are a game developer you will work for like you know obviously everyone's experience is different but let's say you work for like four companies in the course of your career and you you get to know four different management structures um as a as a journalist you will see and talk to you know people of all different levels and different companies regularly like that's that's the difference like it kind of goes both ways in some ways like you know like i've probably had more conversations with the ceos of the companies that make games than vast majority of people who work mm-hmm. in let's say art or level design you know, for for games so uh which is not necessarily fair but it's the way the system is set up and so that system has just made me so much more, more kind of understanding of, of the pressures of game development. And therefore when something is bad, less likely to just totally send it up or, or want to be like negative and being critical, if that makes sense. Like you obviously talk about why things don't work, but yeah, the, the thing I came away with was simply like everything's made by people who want it to be good. Like yeah. no one in the creative industry goes into work in the morning saying like, Oh, fuck it. <laughs> like, that's okay, actually the thing that, that sort of changed for me over the course uh, of going from journalist to developer was, I think, quite early on in my journalist career. I was never, like, the kind of writer who would, like, take the piss out of the thing that I hated. I, in fact, it was kind of what I saw as a flaw in my writing at the time, was if I hated something, I couldn't be funny about it because I was just, like, depressed about how bad it was. But I also, I would, I think back in those days, if something was really bad, if it was, like, offensively bad, I would be pissed off at the people who made it. And that's not true these days. Like now I'm, I'm never annoyed at the people. It's always like, well, this thing turned out shit. I'm sure it was the result of some awful processes or some terrible, mm. like I'm, there's no shortage of ways a game can get completely fucked up by the process without anyone involved actually having any bad intent. Yeah. I mean, so this question like originally came from like a, so this concept of backseat game design, which is sort of, I guess to spin it off in a different way, the notion that it's easy to offer criticism when you're not the person trying to solve the problems mm. in the moment. And I kind of get that, but at the same, the t- same time, I think, um, I think it's kind of like, it's rare that you sort of impose a game design ideal on something, right? Cause game, you know, it's much more kind of cut and dry than that. Like if something doesn't work, it doesn't work. Yeah. Like games is almost weird among critical kind of fields for that reason. Yeah. I think the, the dividing line is like in a review, you can absolutely say anything that you think doesn't work, doesn't work. But if you want to suggest an alternative, like, oh, it would work if they did this, that's backseat game design. Yeah. And it's possible to be good enough at that that you might be right, but it's also very likely you'll be wrong. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, there is almost certainly a reason someone's... Like, if anything, I would say, like... And if anything, it's, it's, it's not the critic's job to, to say, to offer the fix. It's no. to point out... Yeah. Kind of- and that was a line I had to find. I did, there was, I'm sure there's writing by me out there where I was like they did this wrong they should have done it like this because i have so full of ideas and then at some point i realized i should stop saying the ideas i should just stick to the criticism like there's something that um yeah like there's that definitely that sort of like um you know element of like obviously you went into games media wanting to be a game developer because that is what you subsequently became if tom like i didn't know when i went to games journalism really? i didn't know i wanted to be a developer no. huh. that's interesting I, I sort of assumed that you must have done because you transitioned to it obviously <laughs> very well so. no it wasn't until i would say like uh darwinia was the first time that i mm. sort of i knew that an indie developer could make something that i was really excited about and then spelunky was the first time i i thought maybe i could be involved in this <laughs> huh yeah that's interesting i i went into it really wanting to 
meet or like wanting to have conversations with the people who did these things because i found them so interesting if that makes sense mm. it's like obviously there's a there's a job aspect there that isn't clear like it's like what is the job where you just <laughs> <laughs> chat the chatting the job. chat um and that has taken lots of different forms but like that was the impetus was like but i think obviously the you know um not only obviously you're a little older than me but also i i was in my mid to late 20s by the time i came into games media and i sort of mm. you know it was a different era like for me it was the era when there were more there was more kind of like just people talking about games critically on podcasts and things and it was that feeling of like oh god i want to be having these conversations with yeah. people um that existed and kind of drove me over to that that side of things so i think maybe it frames it things slightly differently i don't know i don't mm. know alex you've been around forever <laughs> <laughs> i was just interested in i was interested in design but i I've always been interested in all kinds of design. So I used to work, my first journalism jobs were on um, architecture and design magazine. Hmm. So, and I just, I was, I've always been interested in the decisions people make, mm. why they make them mm. in order to make stuff. Um, and because I love games, I wanted to like transition to games. It's like, that was what I, I wanted to work for edge, like all the way through and kind of, accidentally worked in architecture design for a few years first hmm. um but yeah like that meant that i did get a shitload out of talking to people who make games and then kind of pretty much that's my the most journalism i write now is just interviews mm. with people about what why they do that what they do you know the why they made the decisions they do which is fucking great that's exactly what i wanted to do really <laughs> but I don't really have, I never felt that I at all qualified to be able to offer any alternatives. Like, mm. and I often, I, I still find myself occasionally sort of trying to sort of talk knowledgeably with, with a developer or, or a designer and, and like, and never, and then sort of regretting it immediately. I don't think I completely fuck up or, mm. you know, that much. At the same time. But I often feel like, you know, just like I've always found I've, for me, journalism is always like, you don't put yourself forward. Like the subject is everything. And, you know, like shut the fuck up, Alex. <laughs> just, like, the yeah. whole point is that you don't fucking speak. <laughs> yeah. I think that's like, yeah, I get that. I, I, that is also a big mood. <laughs> I don't, I, I don't, but, I, I don't actually think that's a universal. Like no, it's I definitely it just, it's certainly what I feel for myself. I think what like, I want to do. Oh, I've had enough of this. Um, this booze to now to first get heavy, but like, <laughs> I feel like that's a really appropriate stance for like journalists of a certain stripe to adopt. Like, I think it's an honorable stance. It's mm. the, I am not the subject uh, angle, which is, you know, it, it puts other people forward. However, I think there's the risk there of like, not, not necessarily like dehumanizing the other person, but setting what they understand as so far apart from what you understand that you can only be kind of supplicatory oh sure but then but then sense. there's the writing process and like so so they you know you do the interview like, I, th I think that you end up whether you want to or not when you write it you're doing that in a room on your own like right, and yeah. you cannot help but stick a shitload of yourself in yeah. your own interpretations you know whether you're conscious or not are going to go in there mm. and you know you're going to get stuff wrong and you get some right stuff right and um 
like I don't think that that's I think it's possible not to. But like I said, I I don't think that that purity thing that like like sort of um, puritanical kind of attitude is a universal. Like I don't think that it's no. the only way to to write about write journalism. And I think but it's just what certainly is what suits me. Yeah, and I think crucially that's changing from really good ways. Like um, I th- I thought it was interesting this week watching the Tomb Raider reviews come out noticing how many of the reviews particularly for places like waypoint i think maybe it's related to the podcast that uh, mentioned by kevin in the previous question but how many of those reviews just allowed themselves to take the time to pick apart and and well to to analyze the kind of the the kind of tonal cultural storytelling issues mm-hmm. that those games have because like that is a kind of critical voice that um struggles in an environment that says that game reviews have to include certain things and you know you have to have the the design chat or whatever mm. rather than that you can't take a, a a lens to it or an angle to it you can't you know have a critical voice in that way which is separate from that is separate from and this is where we get into structured chat so maybe we can move on but like there's a difference between a particular school of game journalism which is like here is the experience i had in the video game and sort of critic led games journalism, which is taking a particular view of a game and talking about what it succeeds and doesn't based on basically a particular cultural consideration. And that has been missing for a really long time. And it's really cool to see it arrive. And it arrives because of greater diversity of voices among critics, mm. basically like people in our position broadly are kind of, you know, on your design chat side of things simply because we've kind of always played games and we've always felt the games were for us and we've always had the kind of freedom to kind of really get into the weeds about what, how this thing functions as a kind of mechanical bit of video game design. But something like, for example, the presentation of indigenous peoples in Tomb Raider is a subject that I'm really well, I'm really glad to see covered and particularly really glad to see covered within the headline review, not simply mm. article about, but mm. this is our review yeah. and it has a score mm. on it because that is kind of exactly what criticism should be doing. And it's only possible because of a greater diversity of writers. Yeah. And it's more about like, and it's not, yeah, it's, it's a good thing, basically. I don't have a further yeah. point to that, to that really. It is good. It's good. <laughs> it and is. also, it's also good, but it's also kind of, maybe as a counterpoint to this question, this is where I was going with it. It's good in a way that the, the parameters of you haven't made games, so you can't criticize games doesn't quite recognize. Because I can imagine people at the studio who don't consider the things that are being, the games being rightly criticized for, in the case of, for example, the new Tomb Raider, not understanding why their review from a big outlet has taken this direction. Yeah. I mean, that's absolutely the right of the critic. And there will inevitably be arguments as the culture of games creation, which is usually collective and somewhat anonymizing and, and somewhat factory-like in terms of the vast amounts of assets required to create something that ultimately ends up expressing something political that any individual person involved in this creation probably has no idea is happening versus a critical community that's becoming more you know sort of vocal and varied and diverse in lots of good ways that's an argument that will stretch off into the future but it's nonetheless kind of like a positive direction i don't know if anything i just said made any sense but like it does i would i'd like to um you know i'd like to i'd like to ask them why as well like that 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 Mm. would be my take on it like i would like to know why did that go in there like what is its purpose because like games are very sort of um yeah there's a reason for most stuff in there like Mm. you know whether whether it's because oh we wanted to evoke like 1930s racist fucking you know sort of um archaeological well that's the thing right like games have such a weird relationship so i think we're specifically talking about triple a games here 
rather than like small teams of indie developers making something. <coughs> Games have such a weird relationship with like intention and yeah. critics have such a weird relationship with intention because uh, you know, a trope we've just been talking about of like bad criticism or bad faith criticism where someone makes loads of ad hominem attacks on the developers of game, particularly when you're talking about a big game, is completely misleading. Because if you say like, the developers of Call of Duty don't know shit. And then you're talking about like huge numbers of people spread across multiple studios, yeah. probably hundreds of people. And you're like, well, that's not really fair because, you know, fucking red barrel artist guy over here probably does know what he's doing. You know, like, and that probably stretches most of the way through the system, etc. But actually, when it comes to criticizing games as art, basically, you end up with the issue of like, this new Tomb Raider involves a lot of typing on a lot of typewriters. And at what point was there a point of intention or a point of direction? And there absolutely was, but the traditional kind of setup struggles to find those points where you can ask yeah, exactly. that question meaningfully. Yeah, I, I remember the question I was always asking in interviews was just like, either why did you make this game or like what did you set out to do with this game especially mm. if it's a sequel it would be like what did you set out to do with this game and I thought that was like it was a, sometimes a very successful question and it seemed like it would get to the heart of just like you know the whole soul of this thing but then sometimes it would totally fail and they would just be like they, they would dodge it and <laughs> act like they didn't have the answer I'm like how are you not the answer to that and now that I know more about the industry I realize sometimes the person you're talking to did not make the decision to make this game yeah. <laughs> and was told by yeah. a higher up we're making this game for business and strategic reasons yeah. <laughs> and they have to just fucking make up a creative reason for why they're making it yeah exactly man hmm. next question <clears throat> my voice is going comes from uh Jams from Discord who writes, Hello, party gamers. Turn to the person on your left and recommend to them a game you think they'd like that they probably haven't played. Do the same with the person on your right, but with a game they'd hate. This isn't a question. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's from Jams. And this is, this is a rare example among emails we've received where we sat here basically like, Heads in hands in silence for about five (laughs) minutes, figuring out answers to this that we haven't revealed to each other yet so that we would not have that experience on the actual podcast that we're recording. It's a very Uh, good question. It is very good. It gets into games and it gets into us. And what we know about each other, because we had to guess about games we haven't played, so we might be wrong about this. Um, Should we start with games we like and go around the circle? Yeah, we'll go around this way and then round that way. Okay, so that means... Good and bad. So good then bad? Good then bad or bad then yeah good good, good then, then bad, bad. Okay, okay. Okay. okay Alex you seem like you're volunteering to go first oh okay so uh, recommend to left, Tom yeah, yeah Tom. recommend okay. to Tom a game you think he would like Tom for Christ's sakes why haven't you played Exapunks yet oh it's very new <laughs> <laughs> it's so you yeah so and you haven't really I can you tell, haven't do you actually want me to ask this because I can't it's like a series it. of interventions uh, yeah, yeah. I, I loved Opus Magnum and I haven't finished it yet. And oh, okay. I gather Exapunks is less user friendly than Opus Magnum, and Opus Magnum was already quite <laughs> demanding of me. <laughs> I can see danger for you. I can never see danger for you, but uh, yeah. And also, feels... so like uh, Opus Magnum was a bit of a revelation for me. I had played a bunch of Zachtronic stuff. Um, Space Chem, I never got on with as much as other people because it felt like programming. And it is programming. All these games are programming. <laughs> um, but Opus Magnum makes it a, a very visual and satisfying and, and beautiful yeah, experience. Interesting. I think like, Infinity yeah, Factory I was, was close. I really liked Infinity Factory. I didn't complete it. Um, I guess I've never completed any of his games. <laughs> but, uh, 
I there was a certain time where it got overwhelming for me. It was just like there was so much going on, and I couldn't keep it all in my view at once. And Opus Magnum doesn't have that problem, and so I, I should complete Opus Magnum. I feel like if there's any any of his games I'm going to complete, it will be that one. And until I do that, I probably won't play any others. <laughs> I, mis- I think I misjudged it then because, like, I, I definitely thought no, there was a fear good. that you might think that a programming game would just be like work. Yeah, that's part of it. <laughs> it's uh, Opus it's Magnum does such a good job of making it not like programming. It's, yeah. It is algorithmic, but it's so visual and so spatial. And, and you know, Intuitive. there is that programming track down the bottom. And I spend 90% of my time looking at the board rather than that. Whereas something like Space Cam, it was all about the algorithm. Yeah. Hmm. Continue around the circle, Tom. Okay, so you got... <laughs> uh, my first thought was... Did you play Morrowind? Yes. Okay, shit. <laughs> Did you play Ultima Underworld? Uh, yes. Shit. But like, but actually not like, I was too young. So like, not right. a lot, like not to the extent that I understood it. That's a good recommendation because I really should go back and kind of. Yeah. Ultima Underworld was the, the, the game that, that sold me on games, basically. Like mm. it was the, the game that made me realize a game is not about a high score. Like it, it's not as simple as Space Invaders. It's, mm. uh, Ultima Underworld was like, oh shit, I went underground and now there's a fucking world here and the orcs have their own society and I can trade with them instead of fighting them. And it just like opened my eyes to like the whole thing about games being worlds. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. and it also just had this, this sense of like mystery and the unknown that I haven't really had since actually. Like, cause you just go deeper and deeper and you have no idea what's down there and there's always, you can only ever see 10 feet in front of you. Um, and there's like rivers down there and caves down there and weird societies. And the further, the deeper you get, the more kind of mystical it gets. It has a really good art to mm. it that way. Like I played Ultimate Ultimate World so, so young, I didn't really understand anything about it. It was mm. just, you know, the, the, it, like the, the suggestion of atmosphere. So, but Ultimate Online had exactly that effect on me. Like Ultimate right. Online was like, um, I played that before I played most big RPGs, that and Baldur's Gate. Like the two games that hmm. were like games can be much bigger than than this. So yeah, mm. good. When I joined PC Gamer, Morrowind was uh, I was the only person who liked Morrowind. <laughs> I what like, I joined and like most people hadn't played it, and I think uh, I think Ross was the one who reviewed it, and he's just thought, eh, it's not that great. <laughs> and I was like, oh my god, you guys are idiots. Morrowind's amazing, um, and so that like made me the Elder Scrolls guy. And then Oblivion came out, and it was amazing because like everyone was super excited about that. But mm. I was the Elder Scrolls guy. I got in there first. <laughs> I did my time. I wrote my long plays about Morrowind. <laughs> yeah, man, I love Morrowind. Uh, Alex, so I struggled with this because you played everything. Um, so I've gone a bit more recent. Um, I think you would like, uh, Hunt Showdown. Hmm. Oh. Have you played Hunt Showdown? No, I haven't. Fucking get in. Yeah, I'm interested in that. So, uh, very evocative art style. Yeah. Um, uh, very moody atmosphere, horror atmosphere. I think I've spoken about it in the pod before, but I played it again recently and it's, it's really shaping up. It's really coming along. Um, the reason I think you'd like it is because it is, even though it's got like obviously a competitive element, you are basically like pairs of kind of grimy bayou monster hunters heading off into a kind of mm, spooky, neat. shitty wilderness um, to hunt uh, monsters. And there are other players and they're competing to hunt the same monsters. But it's a rare example of a co-op game when you can play and like go and try and find a monster fail to find the monster, not encounter any other players and simply escape again with the little bit of XP you've managed to scrape away. And that's kind of a result because, uh, it's not like permadeath, but like 
you have like a roster of characters and you pick which one you, and they level up and you pick which one you're going to take on, on the, the game with you. And if they die, they're dead. They're gone forever. So, you know, you're gambling with your characters every time you play, but it's also like you can play and it's just sort of like you absorb the atmosphere a bit and like three things happen and then you run away and you get out again and nothing really happened. And that's actually meaningful. And I can imagine you like specifically that. liking that. I'd like that. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I like noble failure. I, yeah, exactly. If I, can, if I can lean on a noble failure, that's... that's so I think there was other things like it. it's a game that uh, lends itself to like both like active leadership, but also just dependable sidekickery. That's me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it totally is. And I was like, Alex, you like this? <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. Because yeah. I've, I've been... Um, I haven't played that much on PC lately because... Uh, our mutual friend Owen has, has been making me play Monster Hunter Generations Ultimate. Oh, of course he has. Which is fucking great. Yeah, I can it's imagine. It's actually way better than World. But, uh, anyway. But so I, like, but I'm more about the hunt. I love the hunt. So I think, much of our gaming lives has been defined by Owen persuading yeah, us to play things. <laughs> Everyone has a different relationship with that power. <laughs> um, okay. Shall we go the other way around and yeah. start doing, uh, Unrecommendations. Okay, should I start? Yeah. Okay, so yeah, I'm going to go with a PlayStation game, but it, this I is for Chris, it, right? Yeah, yeah, this is for Chris. Uh, uh, but it, I suppose it could be a game. No, it has to be this one. Mm. Gran Turismo Sports. <laughs> Ooh, interesting. So, like, sort of, I don't think that you probably are that interested in in racing games, like sim based racing games. I don't. I just think you probably don't care about them. I so I am powerfully indifferent to cars. Yeah, <laughs> that that's good, right? Yeah. <laughs> now layer on with that a game which thinks cars are oh, just, yeah. but in the blandest way. Like it, it's in love with them, but like, but with no hormones going on. At all. <laughs> yeah, it's like I love the smell of leather, <laughs> and I'm going to just celebrate the smell of leather, but there's no payoff. <laughs> but not in like a tantric way <laughs> not, no, not even tantric there's not even any nakedness like if, if there is nakedness there's just like it's Make just it all leather. smooth there's nothing yeah. uh, no hairs it's like <laughs> and and uh, like everything is utterly smooth beautifully constructed but like a celebration of nothing yeah I think that 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 would that would put you off that would make yeah you I angry. think that's a good that's a good Unchoice, like the and it always it's just constant light jazz playing. <laughs> like See, if, I could, if, I, if I could, if I could glean some kind of, if I could glean some kind of like sort of mundane horror from this, then <laughs> I probably would that. like it. <laughs> like if there's some element of like, aren't we all just a fucking Volvo? <laughs> No, because there, there aren't even very many mundane cars in it anymore. Like, because there's a classic uh, Andy Kelly, uh, who we've all worked with at mm. Future. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, tweet, yeah. which I think he retweeted, and I noticed. I, that's it. why that's in my head, actually. And I, yeah, I think it's the the, the line is, um, you know, uh, video games where your dreams can come true, and it's like a picture of a Volvo going around a racetrack. <laughs> a Volvo Estate, brown, I think. But um, yeah, yeah, you're right to indicate GT Sport in that context because yeah. I think I'd probably get some charm out of like flinging a hatchback around a, a thing. Yeah, but no, if it was just like shiny muscle cars doing fast, I don't care. Good choice. Thanks, man. 
Tom, so I, I struggle with this. Such a, this is so easy, but at the same time, so hard. <laughs> yeah, I would think there's a huge swath of things that, especially that you like that I don't, because you are the man who loves to read the text, and I'm the man who hates to read so the I've text. So I've done a little bit of that, but like, I wanted, so I feel like in order to truly pick a game that you would hate, it can't be something that you would simply not play. Like, it has to be something that you might try to <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. So there, it has to be a game that contains a kernel of something that you care about, but buries it in a way that you will find supremely frustrating because <laughs> i think you're very good at not giving games your time like i i i, <laughs> I pride myself what a skill, but, like, but like you you have the ability to like this is boring me i'm gonna stop mm-hmm. whereas like, i just keep going like I, I really will just keep going so um even though like I, it takes me a long time to acknowledge that i am bored like um and um i don't think that's true for you so the game i'm going to suggest for you is fire emblem oh wow that's so interesting because literally today, like someone on my Twitter feed was saying, this is one of my favorite games of all time. And I was like Googling YouTube videos and watching play of it thinking huh. I should get into this. <laughs> I think, I think you it. would hate it. And the reason. That's interesting. Yeah. I don't know how this would play out. The reason is this, right? I'm thinking particularly Fire Emblem Awakenings, which is the one that I most recently played mm. most of. The reason I think is this. You obviously, obviously are interested in clever turn-based battle mm-hmm. systems. It is that. And you're obviously interested in sort of XCOM style games where like, you know, teams sort of level up and, and yeah. whatever. However, I suspect that you are not interested in interminable, uh, <laughs> JRPG style storytelling. <laughs> yep. That's true. I do not think you are interested in endless conversations between characters that are sort of quite fine, but sort of go on and on and on and on and on. Kind of tweet. Yep. Um, I don't also think, true. I don't think you were a fan of, um, uh, sort of fail, un- invisible fail conditions that can mm-hmm. seriously affect the range of abilities you get access to in your playthrough. Yep. <laughs> and on. I don't think you are a fan of those things also being intricately tied to the plot you might be skipping. Yep. <laughs> also a good guess. <laughs> so, so I, I actually watched it. Sorry. Yeah. Like I say, I Googled videos of Fire Emblem Awakening like today. Um, and, or maybe it was yesterday. Uh, and I, they're very few because it's on DS and so they're just on their main gameplay videos on YouTube. Um, but what I found was of a guy who was like, Oh, my girlfriend just gave me this game and I'm going to play it and I'm really excited about it. And it was like, the reason I clicked on it was most of them are like two minutes long and this one was 13 minutes long. So I'm like, okay, some actual gameplay is going to happen here. And then I watched it like, I, I like it, nothing was happening. And so I skipped ahead like three minutes, five minutes, seven minutes, still no gameplay at all. Then the game started at like seven minutes. And then, I, okay, game started, great. I'll skip ahead, like, one minute to get to the actual gameplay. No, no actual gameplay, still a cutscene. Skip ahead two more minutes, nope, still cutscene. Skip ahead five more minutes, nope, still cutscene. It's like 12 minutes into the 13-minute video, still no gameplay, and then he, like, just starts the game, and then the video ends. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I love that game. I think it's great. But I think, I think it's, like, it's capable of, like, specifically aggravating you if that makes sense <laughs> like this is this is good to hear because uh i don't have a 3ds and i was like thinking like oh, if i should play this maybe i should get one and maybe i shouldn't like i i, I think it's great but um yeah yeah um oh, I'm, I'm pleased i think yeah. i think i might have nailed something i also like um sorry i know it has like two modes and in one mode the the actual story characters can die permanently yeah. and in another yeah. mode they can't yeah, yeah. And that was something I was interested in. Like, the you can't main I, either. my main interest was, was not so much, I think this will be fun. It was like, I think it should be good research because I'm making a tactical game. 
and should I do this, like, people can permanently die thing, and... One thing I know for sure is that definitely shouldn't be an option at the start of the game, because that is just making two completely different games. Mm. Um, and I'm not prepared to do that. Uh, and also, I think I'm pretty much committed to the idea that my story characters can't die in this game. I just think that's... that's Actually, partly from playing Detroit, um, uh, where I realized, like, story branches from gameplay failure are just profoundly uninteresting to me. Mm. Like, as soon as I failed in the gameplay sense... I don't care what the story says about that. I want to rewind and just do it again and yeah. make it right. Yeah, don't play Fire Emblem. <laughs> okay. Like, Fire Emblem lets you accidentally kill potential future companion <laughs> characters in missions and lock off entire branches of potential strategic depth on that basis. It's weird because like, I like consequences, but there's a certain kind of consequences that, like, in, in Detroit... <laughs> I think it's how most people feel about consequences, Tom. <laughs> In Detroit, I sort of, I, I misunderstood the controls in one scene and slightly slipped up and that led to just a fundamentally different branch in the story. And the whole time I was just like, nope, nope, this isn't real. This isn't happening because I didn't do that thing. That thing that I fucked up, I wouldn't have fucked that up if I just known how to play the yeah. game. Okay. Tom, what is your game Alex shouldn't play? Uh, I've changed my mind about this several times <laughs> in the conversation. Uh, also just I, kicked the rum over, but we're fine. Have you played Spore? <laughs> See, yeah not no i haven't written no i haven't i don't think you'd like it <laughs> yeah but i do like uh, this is i don't get why you like it yeah there's a set of games that i really love that um uh that are less popular Spore is still pretty popular it's still like a lot of people do like that game but yeah uh especially listening to pip talk about her grievances in it two weeks ago i realized yeah there are a lot of legit reasons to dislike this game <laughs> And when I, like, this is difficult because I haven't heard you bitch about that many games. You're quite a positive person. You're usually telling me about something you do like. Um, But when you don't like something, I feel like it's usually sort of, this is just bad design. This shouldn't have been designed this way. It doesn't make any sense. And Spore is full of that. (laughs) And I like it anyway. Uh, Because it's a very rare case where, like, content overall systems for me. Like, the stuff that I was seeing in the game... It was made by other players, not by Maxis. Yeah. And that stuff was so good uh, that I didn't care about whether the tribe game was like mechanically interesting because I was seeing this giant ornate antique chair attacking a village full of like old men whose wheelchairs are built into their bodies. <laughs> and then like some sentient sniper rifles got in on the fight. <laughs> and I was like, I don't care. Like, who's winning this fight? I'm just having such a great time. <laughs> Yeah, I don't, I'd have, I think I'd have felt fairly unmoved by that. I must admit, like, <laughs> like I, the Werner Herzog of I was gonna, <laughs> sniper rifle oh, man I battles. I them as despair and pain. <laughs> <laughs> oh god. <laughs> Ultimately, I trivial should, creations of Werner right. Herzog narrates sport is like, <laughs> oh, I want to make that more than anything else. <laughs> That's good. But I'm near quirks of a admittedly interesting animation system. <laughs> That has it like when when I was sort of trying to think. The sniper rifle has I eyes, like? but it doesn't feel. <laughs> is there a general area of games that I don't really like? And I you you asked me you said before, sports, and I said I sports games. Like I don't know any sports uh, games. Yeah, yeah. Was it? Alex yeah. said sports, and you went Sp- sport. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I heard the first four letters you said. <laughs> but I, I do. I think that I'm having to come round to a realization which I'm kind of uncomfortable with. But I don't think I like like. uh sort of um uh city builder games like just huh. as management games right and i and i i'm pretty sure i used to love them and i i just f- 
time. Well, get this feeling of utter weariness. What's now. the last one you remember liking? Um, the last one I remember liking. I mean, this is it. Dungeon I, Keeper? I could have sworn, huh? Dungeon Keeper? Oh no, management games, not RPGs. Oh, Dungeon Keeper. Yeah. Okay. Right. That's a management Sorry. Game. Yeah. 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 I got, um, uh, Sim City. 2000 hmm and i could have sworn i probably played like since but then now i think about it i don't think i have and then the last time i played like um i played city skylines which is like yeah clearly a fucking good game it was a That's really good, good game <laughs> really good game i just felt utterly weary <laughs> i just like i'm just sad did you play the sim city game before that like, was it sim city 4 i did actually just... oh no i did i did play a bit of that and was i that, felt that's equally why... weary right that's I feel like that. Oh no, no, slightly more weary. Was a catalyst for a lot of the Love City skylines. Was like first the bad SimCity game made everyone yeah. sad about SimCity, and then City Skylines came along and said, "We don't have those restrictions. We fixed that, and you can do this thing." And everyone got really excited about it. Yeah, and I like. I think it's yeah. I just felt weary. I um yeah. I think it's tired. Oh, I don't know. We're all tired, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> We're all tired. <laughs> that was good. Hmm. That's all the questions we've got time for. If you'd like to send us a question for a future episode, you can email us at questions at com. You can also tweet us at crankandcrowbar. As ever, this podcast and its spin-offs are supported by the Peyton Pobar. The Peyton Pobar. The, 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 the Peyton Pobar Cratrian. <laughs> or the Crate and Crowbar Patreon, as it's also known. You can find out more about supporting the podcast at uh, patreon.com forward slash Crate and Crowbar. And thank you very, very much to everybody who does. Mm. It's very much appreciated. Mm. Uh, you can find, uh, obviously our stuff on, on YouTube and YouTube. Oh, for fuck's sake. www.youtube.com slash for fuck's sake. Crate and Crowbar. It's all Crate and Crowbar. It's all Crate and Crowbar all the way down. Um, if you'd like to follow us as individuals, that's an option that you have. Tom, I'm at Pentadac, P-E-N-T-A-D-A-C-T. Alex. I am at Rotational, R-O-T-A-T-I-O-N-A-L. And I'm at C. Thurston. That's C-T-H-U-R-S-T-E-N. I think we handled that well. Yeah, that went really smoothly. Great. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody.